You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. You can run from Suspiria. You can hide from Suspiria. Who's there? Who's there? But you cannot escape Suspiria. Once you've seen Suspiria, you will never again feel safe in the dark. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Oh, man, I love Frank Zappa and the Three Mothers. Also back with us is Ms. Maitland McDonough. Always a fan of all things Argento and Argento-related. We are kicking off Shocktober 2018 with a discussion of Dario Argento's 1977 film Suspiria. The film stars Jessica Harper as Susie Banyan, a young dancer who travels from New York to Germany to attend a prestigious dance academy to not do a lot of dancing, but instead to become embroiled in a mystery. We will undoubtedly be spoiling the 1977 version of Suspiria and might even spoil the 2018 version just for kicks, so be warned. So, Rob, when was the first time you saw Suspiria, and what did you think? I saw it originally on video, and it was when Anchor Bay did their Argento releases. This must have been late 90s, early 2000. I think I was probably working at Thomas Video then. And then uh, the main art theater had it for a midnight, and I went... And this movie is, uh, as I've told people, I've seen a lot of uh, heavy mixed um, Hollywood film. I mean, like Michael Bay films sometimes are very loud, but it's nothing compared to seeing Suspiria in a theater. It is like going to a rock concert. Um, the way the music is mixed and the sound, it really comes at you. And uh, you and I had a chance, what was it, last year or earlier this year to uh, see it at the Michigan Theater together. And uh, still, same experience, just... You know, it's it's always better to see it with a crowd. And I remember just being blown away by the color, being blown away by some of the angular stuff that's in there, the framing, uh, some of the camera moves. And um, I learned that there's actually more in it. I keep finding things every time I see it, including something that was rather obvious. So uh, I'll talk about that later. How about you, Maitland? Well, I guess I'm going to date myself here because I actually saw Suspiria when it opened in New York. I saw it in a Times Square theater. And it was one of those movies that just blew my mind. I mean, I saw a lot of movies in Times Square, lots of European horror, lots of exploitation movies, uh, many of which were pretty surprising movies. But Suspiria really was one of those pictures that it was an all-encompassing experience. I, I'm sure the sound system in the theater where I saw it was how should we say, not particularly fabulous. I know from most of my experiences seeing movies in Times Square that the viewing experience generally wasn't great. You know, the lights were usually half up because there was a, a feeling in those theaters that the management wanted to keep an eye on what was going on there so they didn't turn the lights all the way off. And yet, it was absolutely mind-blowing. That Goblin soundtrack, those incredible saturated stained glass colors, it, it was a, an extraordinary experience. Were you familiar with Argento already at the time? I was familiar with him in that I had seen 
two of his films, I think, at that point. I'd seen both of them in Times Square. And they were his earlier films. And, you know, as anybody who is a big Argento fan knows, his earliest films really didn't compare to what he did with Suspiria and after Suspiria. Suspiria really was a dividing line between his earlier Gialli and his phantasmagoric, surreal subsequent movies. So, yes, I'd seen Phantom of Terror as Bird with the Crystal Plumage was released. And I'd seen those pictures, but Suspiria, that was just a smack in the face in a good way, to the degree that you can say that being smacked in the face is a good thing. It was mind boggling. I can't even remember the first time I saw this. I know, I'm pretty sure uh, when we talked about the bird with the crystal plumage that I talked about some sort of segment on MTV that was hosted by, I want to say the guy's name was Chris Cornell of um, not the singer from Soundgarden, but the guy who worked at uh, Premiere Magazine, who was talking about movies that people should see, especially some thrillers. And he highlighted both bird with the crystal plumage and Suspiria and that was my first exposure to both of those movies. And just seeing the five-second clip on an MTV showing some of the images, it just blew me away. And I tried to find those movies on VHS as much as I possibly could. And it took me a lot of years until I was able to find them. Once I finally sat down and watched Suspiria, I didn't know what the hell I had just seen. But I knew that I really liked it. And my first time seeing it on the big screen, Rob, was when we went to see it at the Michigan a few months ago when they showed that 35mm print that was touring around, which, granted, some of it left a lot to be desired. There was some color fading going on in that, you know, compared to the recent restoration of it that's out on Blu-ray. It wasn't as rich as that was on our television sets, but again, it was better to see it in a theater just because of that experience and because of, as you mentioned already, the music and the way that that is just, I almost wore earplugs to see that movie just because it was so out front with that music. It just blew me away as far as bombastically. It is right there, just kind of like you were saying, Maitland, punching me in the face. Absolutely. Suspiria was an incredible, incredible theatrical experience. It was almost hallucinogenic. It was so extraordinary. Just the the color, the sound, the surreality of the images was mind-boggling. I I remember walking out of that theater onto Times Square and feeling as though I had just come from a different place. It's not as though I had walked out of a theater. It was as though I had come from another dimension and was now back on 42nd Street. And I was on my way to the subway on 8th Avenue from this incredible world that Suspiria had opened up to me. And I know that sounds crazy, right? That sounds like an acid trip or something. But it really was an astonishing movie-going experience. And in retrospect, when I think about it, one of the things that I remember most is what I don't remember, which is that I don't remember people talking back to the screen. And I don't remember catcalling. I don't remember anything from the audience. I, I think everybody in that in that house was as captivated as I was. And and 
wasn't talking back and they weren't gossiping to people next to them. They were absolutely completely mesmerized by what they were saying. And that just really talks about what a great work it is because it's able to grab you, hold you, take you to another place, get you to buy into these ideas, these large, crazy ideas, and then drop you off after. And it feels like, you know, roller coaster ride. And sometimes, you know, some films can really do that. And to me, this is one that's that's done it to me over and over again. And then at the same time, there's little things I keep finding, little pieces of visual information. And especially with the new Synapse restoration that Don May and team did over there, there's even more stuff in there that's hiding in the background that I don't remember from video or watching it in the theater. And the movie starts off very much like a fairy tale. I mean, we, we don't necessarily get a once upon a time, but it might as well be. And we have this prelude of music that comes up that introduces us to things. And then we get this voiceover explaining just very briefly as far as who Susie Banyan is, when she left New York, and where she's going to in Germany. And we're just transported so quickly into this. And we're at the airport with Susie. And we have that great transitional moment as far as we're in quote unquote reality with her in this airport and her looking out the sliding glass doors and the way that the music starts to come up whenever we see those doors. And when she leaves the airport, just the monsoon of rain that is coming down, she is, she and the audience are instantly transported into this whole other place where we have this wild lighting scheme and the lighting is fantastic throughout the entire movie. We have this wild lighting scheme. We have this amazing music that has come back. We've got this wind and rain that is just pelting her and boom, we are in this movie and not even five minutes have has elapsed. And we are just completely, for lack of a better term, drenched with this film. The colors are drenching us. The music is drenching us. The rain itself, everything is there. And we are with Susie. And from there, we just kind of go on with her until we're not with her, which is funny because we almost switch protagonists for a real brief moment right at the beginning of the film after she visits this dance academy for the first time. We switch from her being our protagonist. Now we're following Pat Hingle and Susie disappears for a few minutes. There's, I don't ever really know. She says maybe she spends the night in town, but we don't ever see that. We just lose her in the mix and we follow Pat for a while, which is a really interesting thing to do. I can't really think of any other movie where we just move from one protagonist to another so quickly and then back to our main protagonist. Like, she's not a Marion Crane. We're not losing her from that. Let's have Susie step aside for a little bit and follow Pat Hingle. Oh, absolutely. It's incredibly disorienting. But the thing I think that I love most about our introduction to Susie is that taxi ride that she takes through those woods and the unbelievable lighting that you see going across those trees as we see the, the almost imperceptible figure of a girl in between those tree trunks and that flickering lighting. And that really is like a fairy tale. I mean, it really is as though you were seeing a girl pursued by the big bad wolf through the deep dark forest that you only encounter in, in Grimm brothers fairy tales. And it plunges that movie into 
a space that is certainly in the 70s was was really rare because the 70s was a, a period in which horror films, I think, in many cases were very realistic. They were about putting ordinary people into horrific circumstances that nonetheless felt very real. It felt as though, wow, you know, you went on a vacation and you were sunbathing on the beach and then, oh my God, horrifying rednecks targeted you because you were a woman by yourself. There was a great deal of scary reality to a lot of those films that we saw during the 70s. And Suspiria absolutely took us to a completely different place. It took us into the kind of fairy tales that I think many, if not most of us, were familiar with as children, but brought them into the 20th century and made them very, very scary. Another aspect of it, too, that uh, this is something that I picked up on on, on subsequent viewings is uh, Escher and the use of Escher um, as a design theme and, and even her getting in the cab saying she's going to Escherstrasse, which means Escher Street in German. And, you know, if anyone knows, I mean, Escher posters, you know, when I was a kid were all over the place, you know, with the staircases that kind of go in these odd directions and they all seem like they're following this like optical illusion. And if there's anything that connects that opening of her saying that from her saying Escher to Escher-like is when Pat Hingle, we, we follow her to that apartment, there is one of his motifs of the fish and the birds in the um, the wallpaper. And then also just even walking into that apartment complex, you see these set of stairs go off. And then later when we get into the film, just the house itself, and they're trying to figure out what is sort of the um, uh, the mapping of this place. Well, I hear steps going this way, but they're going that way, but that doesn't make sense. The idea of illusion and things not necessarily being what you think they are when you look at them. And by the way, when we're talking about Pat Hingle, that's the character's name. This is not the character actor, Pat Hingle, who makes an appearance here. Robert, what's up? Anonymous tip. Napier's cleaning out Axis chemicals. Good Lord, if we could put our hands on him, we'd have prison. Why wasn't I told about this? Who's in charge? Eckhart, sir. Oh, my God. Come on, let's go. This is one of those set pieces, her being followed um, and and worried about something that's over there, and she's staying in the apartment, and she's looking out the window, and then these eyes, and then the eyes, and then, of course, there's the hand, and we all know that typically it was Argento who was doing the close-ups with the, you know, the stabbiness, is that as a set piece, like, when you want to talk about horror set pieces, it is horrific, but also from a design and a color standpoint, it's one of the most beautiful scenes that I've seen in a horror film of a death with the stained glass and all of this. I mean, just it is horrific and has this odd sort of beauty to it that you can't kind of look away at the same time that you want to look away. That is Suspiria from top to bottom. I mean, Suspiria is horrifying. It's grotesque. It's, it's all about the spectacle of baroquely horrible death, and yet it is incredibly beautiful. It, it's the thing that made Suspiria such a landmark when all of us first saw it, because I can't think of a film like that that I saw before Suspiria. And I'd seen a fair amount of European horror movies that were very stylized, that took a much more aesthetic approach 
to mayhem than most American films. But Suspiria really took that all to a new level. It took that Escher-like inversion of the thing you think you're seeing, and yet then it turns around and it's something else. It took the notion of design on uh, walls, in images, every place in the film, to a, a new level. I mean, Suspiria really was... I think for most of us who saw that film for the first time in the 70s, a great leap forward in the aesthetic design of horror cinema. Well, in that this movie can slip easily back and forth between being what Argento had done before, which was slasher films, very stylized slasher films, Jolly, and this supernatural film. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, we don't really ever learn or care about who is wearing those black gloves and who is doing these murders because it's just it kind of reminds me of like the chauffeur from the big sleep it's like it happens but i don't really care all of the nuts and bolts i don't care that the camera is you know so far away from the window that pat is at and then swoops in and that there are these yellow eyes and these hands come in from the outside in a way that really couldn't necessarily be a real thing, but I don't really care if it is a real thing, and I don't care who it is that's doing the pursuing. I just know that there are bad forces at work. I just feel like it was answered with the ending, that it's just the witches. Sorry, I just spoiled it. (laughs) We warn people. We warn people up front. And plus, you know, it's not like they scream out, which within the first few minutes of the film. I mean, it's not like it's part of the soundtrack. No, it's not buried in the music at all. If uh, you're not listening, no, no, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Screaming at you over and over again as they're going through that black forest and you get that, the crazy flash of lightning and you see a, a figure on one of the trees and you're just like, okay, yeah, there's some really bad stuff going on here. And I love, you know, we've talked, uh, talked especially in the bird with the crystal plumage, uh, episode about uh, investigation and investigators and just, you know, so many of the Jolly were, you know, procedurals and, and mysteries. And we have that here as well, where we have uh, Susie and then Pat and, and and Sarah, basically three women who are looking into things that are happening at this dance academy. And the whole idea of them investigating things and trying to learn the secrets is really nice in the way that we kind of move from one to another. Because for a little while, Sarah, who is another student at the Academy, is kind of our leader in the investigation until Susie kind of takes back over. So we're following Susie through a lot of this, but there are many times where she doesn't have the the greatest hold on stuff. You know, even when she hears what Pat is screaming uh, in the rainstorm at the people at the dance Academy, it's one of these murky memories that doesn't really come back in full until near the end of the film. And then she finally realizes what she had heard. One of the things that's fascinating about Suspiria is that it's about the failure of investigation. You know, there, there is, as you said, a very significant, secondary plot about various characters trying to apply rational investigation to what's going on there, to counting the footsteps at night, to attempting to figure out what the iris means. And ultimately, 
it's completely useless because they're in an irrational space. And everything that goes on in the Tanz Academy is crazy. It's lunatic. And there really is no way that investigating it in a rational fashion will bring you a conclusion that will help you to get away from it. And I think that that's part of what makes Suspiria so unsettling, because frankly, you can do the right thing. You can be rational. You can sit down and think about, well, here are the clues I have, and here's what they lead me to think I should be investigating. And you know what? Doesn't do you one bit of good because you're in an irrational space and there is nothing you can do to get away from it. And in the beginning, I mean, we meet the investigators. The police are there when Susie finally shows up and is introduced to Miss Tanner and she's going to, you know, get into the school and all that. And we never see the investigators again. So uh, the other thing that I've also noticed and I really kind of looked at it this time is that this film is and I know I'm going to use it and people are going to go, oh, oh, very funny. No, but I mean, this is a chick flick in the greatest sense of the term, in that it is centered on women, it regards women, it is women in control, it is women doing evil things, and all the men in here are really useless. They're either servants and puppets of of the women, or they're completely inept. They can't do anything. They're just useless. And it is a woman's world, and it's only going to be a smart one that's going to be able to figure out what's going on. Or they're blind. Or they're crippled. I mean, they're, they're, the, the men in this movie are 100% useless. I would say Alexander, the nephew. I mean, he's been described before as being like a familiar to his aunt, Madame Blanc. And I completely see that. Like, he's either with her and serving her, or he's with the cook and serving the cook. And he's just basically there to do evil things. And then him being this mix of the masculine and feminine, I mean, we saw him just one movie before in Deep Red where he was kind of doing the same thing is, you know, an interesting mix as well that he's skirting that line between the two genders. But yeah, most, I would say, yeah, every man in here is a servant or just, you know, they're contradicting each other. There's the, the whole thing of, uh, I, I forget what Udo Kier's uh, name, Dr. Mandel, or is it Dr. Millius? Mandel, him saying one thing and then his mentor, Dr. Millius, basically saying the exact opposite. It's like these guys can't even agree and they're supposed to be the experts. So again, kind of useless. Absolutely. The men in this movie are useless. They're hopeless. We should talk about Ms. Tanner because <laughs> Alita Valdi as Ms. Tanner is one of the most remarkable characters. I think she's she even has more to do and more screen time than Madame Blanc. And I love Joan Bennett, Joan and it was amazing and so many of the things that she did. But Alita Valley as Ms. Tanner with that wonderful smile and those crazy curls on her head. She looks like she stepped right out of the animated sequences from Pink Floyd's The Wall. You know, she just has that look about her of like, I am a matron and you are going to do whatever the fuck I want to say. And just her being so rigid about stuff and then those crazy fetishy kind of heels that she wears that we get to see in close-up when she's going across the uh, the attic and crushing all of those uh, maggots. 
fantastic. I'm sure that there are guys who just still frame that and and just have their way about themselves with that because she is magnificent. Oh, and she is pure Third Reich. I mean, she is basically, without saying Nazi and wearing an armband, she is Nazi. I will admit that I don't know a lot of her work, but it took me a minute to realize that she was Anna in The Third Man. Oh, yeah. She was in so many great things, and she was also in The the Paradigm Case. Yeah, she had a really long and varied career. But, you know, in Suspiria, basically, she is the empress of crush videos. I mean, she's terrifying. And her teeth scare me so much. When I think about her in Suspiria, all I can think about is her teeth. And they scare me in a very primal way. And I don't think that that's accidental. I I think that Argento was extremely aware of how alarming that was. Who's got better teeth, her or Pablo? She's got scarier teeth because they are so white and so perfect. Pablo's teeth are just bad European teeth. Her teeth are scary, scary, scary. They're like attack dog teeth. That German shepherd, right? I I mean, how horrifying is that that guide dog turning on his owner? It's definitely all of a piece. Well, yeah, and that it takes place in that square in, uh, what is that, Munich, where it just looks like, it looks like they were just cleaning up from a Nazi rally the day before. That beer garden that's in there was the beer hall of the famous beer hall riot in, what, 23? And then that square, of my understanding, was where they used to do a lot of the book burnings. My boy, we're pilgrims in an unholy land. They mention the Yellow Room, though I don't think we necessarily see the Yellow Room too much. Mostly what I'm struck with in the film is the reds and the blues, and there's some greens in there as well, but mostly it's the reds and the blues that are just overwhelming. And then it's really a stark contrast for me when we go to Olga's place, and we see that Olga's place is done up almost purely in black and white, and it's a really... The only time that we're really given a little bit of a uh, an ocular break from all of the colors. And Olga, I mean, she doesn't have a whole lot of screen time, but she's a fascinating character to me. And I just, I wish that there was more Olga. Maybe just because I think that she's a, a very interesting person. And especially with her whole thing about women with S's in their names uh, are representative of snakes and her whole uh, tongue fight that she gets in with Sarah. Well, first of all, I, I truly love that the women who have names beginning in S have the, the names of snakes. She does not pull any punches on that. It's absolutely fascinating. And it, it alludes to something that is, um, is, is not a primary theme in, in Suspiria, but it does suggest that there's a kind of an animistic notion going on in that film, one in which dance is related to a connection with the not civilized world, that dance somehow connects us to something primordial, uh, something primitive that allows us to feel the way animals feel. And I don't think that that's very clearly developed in that film, but I think that the yeah, women whose names begin with S have the names of snakes alludes to it in a certain way. 
we're talking about a movie that was primarily Italian, but then dubbed into English. Uh, but I don't think it's any coincidence that Secret and Iris also have strong syllable S's in there as well. I think that's all by design. And then, yeah, to the animals and the animistic thing, we were just talking a little bit about Daniel's seeing eye dog and that that becomes a murder weapon, basically, I think is very intentional. And I'm surprised that there aren't more animals that show up in this film. Particularly because Argento's previous three films are the films that people refer to as the animal trilogy. So uh, that is something that is definitely a, a piece of Argento's work, this idea that people are connected to the world of, of, of creatures, that they were a part of us and we were a part of them, and that our impulses for all that they're mediated by the layers of civilization that we are brought up with are no less primordial. And the whole idea of the light that strikes her eyes, I mean, this isn't necessarily what we would consider like a typical spell from a witch. You know, we're not seeing any sort of eye of newt or any of those kind of things, but that what affects her so much is just being hit in the eye with a beam of light. And that's what pretty much takes her down and really puts into motion a whole lot of machinations. The idea of her staying away from the dance academy, living off campus is such an affront all of a sudden to, <laughs> they're the ones who suggest like you need to live away. And then it's like, no, no, you need to come back. And they're kind of jerking her back and forth as far as no, 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 we want you to do what we want to do. And it's really what I feel is like very much a power play. And we want to break you. We, you shouldn't be able to say no to us. Right. And then also consider Iris again, as Iris as in the eye, seeing things, things that aren't there, things that are what you you think it might be, but it might not be. The other thing also, when we get into Madame Blanc's uh, office, once again, more Escher uh, paintings, uh, design, the staircases all going all these different directions. And then the other thing I noticed, we were talking about the architecture of the building. You know, they talk about the yellow room, and then there's the blue room that we see, and there's a uh, the red is that the irises on the wall are corresponding colors to those various rooms that we had seen in the past as well. So we need to keep them under control. I think that uh, the, the women who are running the show here at the school understand that it's only through keeping these soon-to-be young women, independent women, as young girls as long as possible is really the way to go. And it's my understanding uh, from the readings that I've done in interviews that Argento actually wanted to cast this with teenage girls, but couldn't get away with it due to the content. So you'll notice that a lot of the architecture is out of skew. So the door handles are up higher and he was trying to make it seem like they were smaller in stature, you know, in stature, but I don't necessarily know if that works so well. I didn't notice that until someone had pointed it out to me. I guess that's very much a uh, Hitchcock and Rebecca kind of a thing. And really, I guess Mrs. Tanner could be a distant relative of Mrs. Danvers. One of the things that's interesting about the remake of Suspiria is that it is very explicitly involved with the notion that the dance world is a world of very serious domination, or one in which to enter that world is to be subservient to it. And I think that that idea absolutely is present in Argento's Suspiria, 
but that it is expressed more explicitly in the remake of Suspiria. And the reason I mention that is because I spent a very significant portion of my life working in the dance world. And the dance world really is a cult. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but to give yourself over to being a dancer is to separate yourself from your previous life and to commit yourself to the world of the dance. And I think you see that in Argento's Suspiria, but you see it even more in the remake of Suspiria. People have joked around that Suspiria is a dance movie without very much dance. And it's after she gets hit in the eye with that beam of light that we have one of the very few dance scenes. And it's, I think, the only time we really get to see Susie Banyan trying to do her thing, but she is in no shape to do anything. So it's very odd and to the point of why was this at dance studio other than those points that you were just making Maitland, because we really don't see these women dancing. There needs to be a reason to get these women together in the story. And it's basically under the impetus of a dance Academy, but it could be under the impetus of anything else. It could have just been a regular school, but I think, you know, to what you were saying, dance brings along with it a whole lot of other things and the whole idea of the structure and the commitment and the equipment. And, you know, they're even talking about the different dress that you have to have, the different shoes that you have to have. I mean, there's a whole lot of things going on there, but we really only get to see Susie trying to dance the one time mainly. And then it ends up being a failure for her because, again, they're exerting their control over her. Well, and, you know, Argento has said that part of the impetus for the story of Suspiria was that uh, his wife, Daria Nicolotti, had gone to a school where she felt that all of the teachers were witches and that the students there were dealing with their dominion, basically. But in the new Suspiria, it is very much about the world of dance. One of the most unconvincing things for me in Suspiria, the Argento version, is the moment where you see Susie going up on point and, you know, my God, her ankles are roughly as strong as mine are, which is to say totally not up to snuff for standing up on point. I mean, she is staggering, frankly, but in the new version of Suspiria, which is not set in a ballet school, it's set in a dance school, but uh, a modern dance school. So nobody's on point. You know, the dancers are actually quite convincing dancers, and the notion that dance is a cult is very much present throughout the film, and I think mean, dance is a religion, quite honestly, and it's a religion that can go in a lot of directions, some good and some not so good. So once Susie has her collapse, and they revive her by forcing her to drink. It's really kind of an unpleasant scene watching them force uh, her to drink. She's being counseled by Dr. Vertigast. And if that name is familiar to folks who are uh, loyal listeners of the projection booth, that's because that's the same name that we have way back in the black cat with Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And I, there is no doubt that that was uh, a purposeful uh, naming there. The whole idea of, 
them controlling Susie through this red wine that they're giving her with every meal. I mean, we are not even a decade north of Rosemary's Baby. It's so reminded me of the Tannis root necklace that Ruth Gordon gives to Rosemary to, you know, help her with her instability, which is actually, again, a control mechanism. I'm sure that it had been done many times before, but I guess just because of the whole idea of all of them witches and trying to control this poor girl really brought it home as far as the connections there. I had never thought of Rosemary's Baby until I watched this film with my wife uh, this week, who it was the first time that she had seen it. And after it was over, she goes, it kind of reminded me of Rosemary's Baby. And I go, hmm, yeah, you're right. Oh, very much so. I mean, yes, absolutely. The all of them witches element is, is so profoundly there that once you think about it, you can't see anything else. Yet there are so many strange moments in this film. There are moments where you think that stuff should happen, but then scenes just kind of end. Like I was rewatching this tonight and seeing that scene of, you know, I mentioned the the maggots that are falling from the ceiling, which is such a, a striking image. And it's happened to all of us. We've ordered some meat. We keep it up in the attic. It goes bad. I mean, who hasn't had that happen to them? I store all my meat in the attic. I mean, who doesn't store all their meat in the attic? I mean, it makes sense. I also have a room filled with razor wire, but we'll talk about that later on. You know, that whole thing of then they create that dormitory in the, in an open space and they have those white sheets and then that beautiful red light that comes on after they turn out the lights in the room. I mean, it's just, it's such a fucking nightmare to be in there with that red light. And they've they've got that uh, the woman who comes in and lays down behind them who is just gasping for breath and it is again just a horror show and we've got Susie and Sarah talking about who this could be and they are determining that it's the person that runs the whole show Helena Marcos and rather than the scene carrying on and doing anything rather than peeking behind the curtain or anything the scene just kind of ends. And I really appreciate that about this movie is that it doesn't do what you expect it to do. Like you would expect like, okay, this takes us to the next level of the investigation. No, the scene ends. And then the next day it's like, was Ms. Marcos here? No, she wasn't. Oh, okay. You know, and that's it. So it's just, it's another thing that adds to the overall mystery without it necessarily being an A to B to C to D type of plot. And that's something I, I really like about Suspiria, because in a lot of horror and thriller films, you find yourself invested in a, in a character who is the Encyclopedia Brown of that film. You know, it's all about investigating and finding everything out and putting it all together. And although that makes for a, a good narrative progression, I have to say as a kid, which is what I was when I read the Encyclopedia of Brown Stories, it actually didn't feel hugely true to me because I, I felt like I don't know how, how motivated you have to be to do that stuff, but that's not me. So it made much more sense to me that there would be these characters who are in this frightening, disturbing situation who nonetheless rolled with it as it happened and didn't take it upon themselves to go into every closet and search every 
bit of the attic and try to find out everything that was going on, except, of course, for you know, poor Sarah, who finds the razor wire room. So perhaps that's a lesson about people who go and investigate too much. I, I felt as though it, it felt very true to my experience as a teenage girl who really didn't put myself in harm's way. And the fact that these girls, although they frankly were in harm's way from the beginning of the film, didn't actually go and search out things that would endanger them. It, it, it made a, a very real emotional sense to me. Yeah, you always get that moment in the horror films where you're like, why are you doing that? You know, why are you going into the dark room? Why are you following this you know, spooky person down a dark hallway, those kind of things. Let's hide in the attic. No, in the basement. Why can't we just get in the running car? You're crazy. Let's hide behind the chainsaws. We'll eventually get there with this, but at this point, they're just like, okay, yeah, there's this creepy person behind this curtain, and I guess they go back to sleep, or they just have a very sleepless night. And they're talking pretty openly about her maybe two feet away from her, but she sleeps very soundly. And by the way, when I'm making these like smart ass remarks, I'm not trying to poke holes in this movie at all because I love every bit of it. And I find that the things that don't make 100% logical sense don't matter. Like I said, who cares about who's wearing the black gloves in this movie? There are spooky things afoot. And that's all I need to know is that this movie is spooky as shit. Like plenty spooky. I think this movie makes a kind of dream sense. And I think we're, we're kind of all on the same page there. It, it feels like you're in a nightmare. And when you're in that nightmare, everything makes perfect sense. And then when you wake up and maybe try to write it down, which I have done from time to time, you know, you look at what you've written down and think, well, wow, <laughs> that, that doesn't make any sense. Why didn't you? do this, that, and the other thing. And it's because it wasn't dream logic. Suspiria is a film that absolutely operates on dream logic. I guess that goes way back to the first time that you ever saw this, and that there weren't people yelling at the screen, because it doesn't really matter. You know, and, and you're, you're more the dreamer at this point, watching this film along with these people who are in the dream, than necessarily being that smart ass in the balcony yelling, you know, why did you do that? Why'd you go in that room? What the fuck you gonna do now? You don't drop your pistol when you bust in the window. That's your ass, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You're there struggling with Sarah as she's trying to build that makeshift ladder to get out of the room where the killer's pursuing her. And then you're there with her when she dives headfirst into a room filled with razor wire. And to your point, Maitland, it is a nightmare. I mean, who keeps a room full of razor wire? This is just this nightmare situation that comes up. She goes out of the frying pan and into the fire with this. That dick in the balcony who was always saying, oh, man, that stupid bitch, why she's going in there? Was that guy I hated so much because... Clearly, that person hadn't accepted the logic of this film and the way in which this film worked. And yeah, clearly, there are plenty of not good movies where people do unbelievably stupid things and you don't buy them for one second. But Suspiria, because it is operating on this, this, this kind of hypnotic sleep logic, 
made complete sense in a completely nonsensical way from beginning to end. If you're hip to surrealism, you know that a lot of it deals with symbolism and, and oddness. And, and there was an interest by the surrealist in, uh, and a lot of his stuff obviously has been discredited, but it still continues to sort of flow throughout the culture on Freudian uh, symbolism. And the one thing, uh, and I know it's just an easier way, I guess, to kill people in these films, but if you notice that a lot of the deaths are stabbing deaths in this, as has been in a lot of Argento's films up to this point. He's got a thing with knives. But I think in this film, you can really sort of see a line of demarcation between, you know, the younger women, the vir I guess maybe the virginal women, and this sort of budding sexuality with her sort of making eyes at the one dancer and going, hey, you know, and, and all of that. From what I remember, there's not a lot of talk about sexuality so much among the girls it's just sort of they're dancing and maybe a boy's interested or whatever but we're dancing and then there's obviously women who are older and the whole use of the idea of mother of you know as we get further into um to the other argento films so maybe there's some sort of symbolism of you know stabbing equal penetration equal you know this sort of line of mother whore separation, virginal whore separation or something that is in there. I don't know if I'm putting too much into it, but I'm just kind of thinking about the use of certain methods of death and how maybe death and sex are linked in some manner. Yes, of course. There's no question. But that the, the stabbing deaths uh, absolutely have a penetrative function that absolutely suggests sexual intercourse. I mean, there are no two ways about it. But over the years, a lot of um, analysis of Argento's films has leaned very heavily on this notion that they are anti-sex and the uh, women who have sex are automatically doomed and, the, you know, any kind of sexual intercourse is a sign of corruption and what have you. And I, there's no question but that you could make that argument, but I'm not sure that it's an argument that covers the totality of Argento's films. He's a filmmaker who absolutely understands that there's an inherent violence in sex, but I think that he empathizes on a lot of levels with women. For somebody who has a reputation as being the guy who makes all these films where women get stabbed to death. He also has a history of making a remarkable number of films in which women are the protagonists and women are the characters with whom the viewer empathizes. So there's a, a complicated kind of balance going on there in his movies. And Suspiria is certainly one in which you see that. Yeah, it's weird that there's, discussion of mark at the beginning especially when mark brings Susie's stuff over to olga's place and olga's like oh yeah he's really interested in you and talking about mark and then mark just kind of fades back into the wallpaper like he really is a non-character he's there at the beginning get a little bit of him in the background when there's discussion with madame blanc at the beginning and miss tanner and then he shows up at olga's place and we don't get a whole lot more of him. He's not a love interest. Like in any other film, you would expect that 
Olga would have the hots for him, and he, but he wants Susie, and you know she's the bad girl, and one's the good girl, and then he's caught in the middle, and blah blah blah. Even if it's told from the POV of the woman, it's still going to fail the Bechdel test because they're just going to talk about Mark the entire time. And thank God that doesn't happen. This is not his story. This is Susie and Sarah's story, and for part of it, Pat's story. But this is not Mark's story, and that, that's what I really like about this film, too. I think you're completely right. I mean, this is completely a woman's story, or a women's story, because there are several girls who, you know, are, are quite significant to this narrative. It really is not about, oh my God, I love that boy so much. Oh my God, that boy is such a problem. Oh, I don't know what to do with the fact that, you know, I want to be a, I want to be a dancer and he wants me to marry him and have his babies and keep house for him. That is completely not an issue in this film. And that we even have a male victim is interesting that Daniel is one of the victims. And you talked earlier about, you know, him being somewhat ineffectual because he's blind talking about another strange moment of surreality even though he is the only person in the room playing piano, when they come in and interrupt him from playing the piano, there's a full orchestra that plays. But when he stops playing piano, all of that music stops at the same time. He is one hell of a piano player is what I'm trying to say. Clearly so, and yet he's no match for his dog. That becomes such a, a horrific scene. And I thought, you know, you talked earlier about the animism of it. And there's that strange moment before his dog attacks him, where the camera almost takes on the shape of a bird of prey, because we even hear a, a raptor on the the soundtrack as the camera is swooping down at him as if it were a bird, and that seems to be what kind of triggers his dog into turning on him, and then that becomes... Really, I mean, just such a such a terrible scene. And I'm wondering, there's always that thing in movies, right? As far as like, you know, people always label him as the Italian Hitchcock, right? And in Hitchcock's films, if you see somebody wearing glasses, you know that they're too much of an investigator, that something, somebody's looking too hard at things. Daniel being blind, I'm just like, well, what what is that? You know, there's there's such a significance to me that he is blind and he's taken out. He's a man, and, and that kind of marks him as well in this movie of women, but him being this blind man who turns against the women at the academy. When they say that his dog attacked uh, the, the the young boy, he just immediately defends his dog and wants, you know, he's, he's super, um, and rightfully so, because I don't think that his dog did anything. And we don't see that, which is also important. Neither does him. He doesn't see much of anything. But the whole idea of him being blind is such a significant thing, but I have yet to put my finger on why exactly they decided to make his character blind. I'm not sure, but I, I do have to say that that sequence re really reminds me of the, the film Night of the Eagle. And I, I cannot say that I've really sorted that out in my head. I'm, I'm not really sure what I think the connection is, but it reminds me of it in a really profound way. So... I'll work on it. And perhaps the next time we speak, I'll, I'll have it worked out. And there is another flying animal in this, and that's the bat that attacks Susie. And I find that moment to be so significant. It feels like the whole movie turns after that, after she dispatches this bat. 
And the bat is just, it's not the best special effect in the world. It feels like it's out of an old-timey horror movie, but I almost feel that they're going for that, that that is how it's supposed to be, that this is almost a symbol from the old world, the old films, and that Susie's killing of that, it seems to open up a whole new plane to her. Uh, You could assign all kinds of sexual metaphors to what's going on there, and I think you would be absolutely in the right as far as this being you know, kind of her her deflowering uh, and going out into the world after that, because after that, there's no stopping her. I must confess that I have never known quite what to make of that bat sequence, but the, your analysis of it is the best I've heard. You know, I'm so dense that sometimes things that are sitting right in front of me, I didn't realize. So she's doing the thing again where she's laying in bed and going, right, okay, how many footsteps, where are they going? She follows them. And this is part of where I saw this really well on the um, the new one from Synapse is all the writing down the hallway and all the little intricate touches down the hallway. So there's a mix of Latin and Hebrew script, and you notice that it's like various um, various demons or various uh, various things like that. And then she gets to the end of the hallway and, and she sees them sitting. And for a long time, like I I didn't realize. I, I thought she was just having a meeting. This is how dense I am. I thought Madame Blanc was just having a meeting, and I realized no, it's actually a black mass. Is really she's complaining, but also having a black mass at the same time because there's the whole host and um, you know blood chalice and all of that stuff uh, in that sequence. So I'm like, hello, dense guy, uh, wake up. The other thing in there, and I love this little touch because it's something that thematically doesn't fit i don't think because there's not a lot of there's not really a lot of birds i mean there's there's the birds on the wallpaper uh in the the pat hingle uh apartment before um her death but it's a nice little nod i think back to his own uh first film with the peacock there and her using one of the uh i guess crystal pieces from the bird with the crystal plumage there to do the deed at the end I do love the bird with the crystal plumage illusion. It's pretty fabulous. And it's such an ugly, beautiful piece. I mean, I would love to have one of those in my house. Oh, me too. Well, I will neither confirm nor deny that I knew that they were having a black mass until this very moment. I didn't. So you, you were up on me with that one. I thought it was also a meeting, and they were deciding what they were going to do with that American girl. So I did not uh, see the chalice and the host and all that stuff either. So bravo, sir. Um, (laughs) Way to go. And again, it's one of those things that's sort of hiding in plain sight. Like if you're looking for one thing, you see one thing. But if you're looking for something else, you probably see something else. So, you know, I'm sure that for a really Catholic Italian audience that went to see this, they would go, oh, they're giving her this wafer and then the way she's drinking from the cup that is very religious very ritual very black mass but to me the first time i saw it and every time since until the last time i saw it i go eh, she's just complaining about that american girl and what they're going to do about her i also love the the idea though that that, that all of them all of them witches are part of a european tradition of dance and that Susie Banyan is this little American bitch 
uh, coming in here with, you know, her own ideas of, oh, maybe dance should be this or that or the other thing. And they're, they're quite hostile to her and that her new world approach to what they're doing is really offensive to them. And perhaps that's my perception because I, I am aware of the hostilities between old world dance and new world, which is to say American dance. But it, it seemed to me to be a thing in this film. I can see that. And especially that Susie never really struts her stuff as a dancer and that she's supposed to be this hot shit that's coming over. It's, you know, even when Mrs. Tanner is, is saying, yeah, I want to see you do your thing. You know, hey, you, you people talk about you. I want to see it. And then she fails miserably. Again, I think that's more of a humiliation thing than anything. It's just like, yeah, oh, way to go. Look at this. You know, she can't do anything. And now she's bleeding from her nose and mouth. Oh, I can't believe it. In some fundamental way, there is a conflict in this film between an old world school of dance and a new world school of dance. And Susie, frankly, is is not really a great ambassador for the American or whatever else you want to call it, school of dance, because she's not up to it. I mean, when you see her in the studio staggering, you know, with her ankles, you know, bending and her inability to even stay on point, she's not very impressive. And yet she represents a new world of dance. And I don't think it's any coincidence that Madame Blanc knew of her aunt or knew her aunt way back when, because that that kind of is a little bit of a connection and a little bit of a rivalry there as well, I would think. Yeah, there's also the add-in as well, that there's the poster for the Bolshoi when she gets off the plane, and then when she's ill and she wakes up and finds she's the only one there and asks someone, well, where did everyone go? The says, oh, well, Miss Tanner bought tickets for everyone to go to the Bolshoi which she didn't go to. And then there's also a conversation in there. I think this may have been when her ankle's all messed up and she's all woozy, where there's like a little teach about, uh, it's just a few lines where it's like, dance started, you know, like this. And there's this sort of history lesson of what that was all about kind of thing. They're explaining um, sort of the history of, of dance to the girls as they're doing the, their, their stuff. Well, and it kind of mirrors that idea of uh, Professor Mandel, the Udo Kier character, talking about that history of uh, these dancers and the history of these witches, I should say. And it's interesting to me that more than anything, more than the witchcraft, it almost feels like these men are threatened by the idea of that these witches have powers and they make a lot of money and that they're amassing fortunes. It feels like that is a threat to the patriarchy as far as them having some sort of economic power. I mean, I could totally be reading way too much into that and it could be a result of 2018 thinking, but that's how it really feels to me is that the real threat from these witches is that they have this self-possession and are able to do these things and they might possibly you know, threaten to overthrow uh, the the patriarchy. No, I don't think that is a 2018 thing. I think you're absolutely right. The the the, the 
self-direction of these women is threatening to, if not a patriarchy, then certainly an old, an old structure, something that's been in place for probably a hundred years. And these women are a threat to it. Which makes me kind of sad that Susie's the one who undoes the witches. Like, I know these witches were up to bad things, and Daniel didn't deserve to die, and Sarah didn't deserve to die, and Pat didn't deserve to die, but, you know, they're kind of protecting their own self-interests. And so that Susie is a woman taking down these other women, I always feel a little bad for that, because it's just like, I'd rather, I guess, have her do it than stupid Mark do it, but, you know, it's still just like, I, I always feel weird that they're pitting women against women in this film. I can't argue there. It, there is something sad about women being pitted against other women in this film, and that is absolutely the way it plays out. Glad it's not just me. No, not just you. Nope. That our big baddie, I mean, we get to see flashes of our big baddie of Helena Marcos, but I think the most effective thing is when we just get those flashes of her outline. I love that. It's such a probably cheap effect to do but it is really effective i mean it's almost as effective as just a shape behind a curtain that we never really get to see a clear look at her is really kind of nice i really like that oh i completely agree it's incredibly creepy when we do see her i know we're going to be talking in a few weeks on the show about chinese vampires but she reminds me of the first vampire from the mr vampire film where it's just like this messed up face and stuff but again, you know, we don't really get to see a whole lot of that. So I think this movie still works better as what we don't see than what we're necessarily seeing. And by those things that we've talked about before, as far as those elements that make you feel like you're in a dream, like we discussed before, the idea of the colors and the idea of the music, the music being such a major player in this and the way that the music, I mean, the music is almost always there. And then when it really comes to the fore, when they really turn it up, I mean, you feel exhilarated and petrified all at the same time. I mean, this is a great mix of like rock, but with weird instrumentation and those strange vocalizations going on, like especially when they're kind of like howling during some of those songs and that you get a lot of those repeated so you almost get these musical motifs as far as like oh man shit's really going to hit the fan it's this piece of music versus this other piece of music that we've heard in slower scenes but now i know because i hear this big bass that's happening that's when stuff really gets bad although there is a subtlety the way the music is used it's actually kind of contrary to what a lot of people think about argento which is that Argento is the guy who showed you everything. He showed you every pass of the knife through the flesh, every bit of blood, every gory moment. And yet, Suspiria, interestingly, is a, a movie that suggests more than it shows. Yeah, other than the knife through the heart, I mean, there's not a whole lot of graphic violence especially in the second half of the movie i mean that that murder at the beginning is very graphic for a lot of reasons but i think a lot of it is is to shock you and to make you pay attention to what's going on other than that i mean we don't get a whole lot of gore as we go throughout this even poor sarah when she dies 
I don't think it's as gory as the first murder, as Pat Hingle's murder and Pat Hingle's friend. Oh, no, nowhere near, because, but partly because of lighting, because of that blue lighting. It tones it all down in a very serious way. And to be honest, the ending, it's more about killing this this house, this place that is um, doomed, that's, you know, uh, where all these horrible things went on. It's not so much um, the personification. Yeah, I mean, there is the Helena Marcos character, but it seems more like they're taking it out on the on the building itself. And in that way, it was very much like the fall of the House of Usher. It sinks into the tarn. Yeah. No, and we've actually, we've just talked recently about the movies where houses implode and go away. And we were talking, I'm trying to remember what episode it was on, but we've talked about the house and Carrie. Oh, I know it was Exorcist 2. The house and Carrie, the house and Exorcist 2, the house and Poltergeist, where these houses just collapse and go away. And yeah, the house is really what needs to be dispatched by the end. And we're going to get that again in at least one of the other Mother's films um, when we talk about Inferno. All right, we are going to take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. The first is with Alexandra Heller-Nicholas, the author of the Devil's Advocates book on Suspiria. And the second is with Claire Nina Norelli, who is currently writing an article about the use of Goblin's soundtrack in Suspiria. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. We asked the man on the street what he thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast, but sadly he had never heard of either and was on his way to the doctors to have a mole removed. Or it could have been a badger. He wasn't sure. It felt bigger than a mole. Also, he wasn't sure how it got up there in the first place. Anyway, we asked all the famous people, like Michael Ironside, Fred the Hammer Williamson, Ted Raimi, Barbara Crampton, Cynthia Rothrock, and so on, that they've interviewed over there on the After Movie Diner website and podcast what they thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast. But most of them said that if we quoted them, we would be hearing from their comical southern lawyers complete with bow tie, meat gut, and brow mopping hand. So instead, we say who cares what anyone thinks of you after Movie Diner website and podcast. You are awesome just the way you are, so don't you go changing. If you want to see for yourself, go to AfterMovieDiner.com or find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner, doing it their own way since 2011. It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth donate today it's the right thing to do 
Do you like great music? Do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So, if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. I'm going to talk to you about Suspiria, but before that, I want to let people know more about you and about the great work that you've done. So I'm going to ask you uh, to tell me a little bit of the uh, Alexandra Heller Nicholas story. What got you interested in writing about films? I started off writing about music, I guess in that, that strange liminal time between, so the internet was around, but it was nowhere as big as it is now. You know, there was Usenet, but there wasn't social media. So I started with a wonderful ex-boyfriend of mine, a really great person. We started a zine together that got picked up for newsagent distribution. And from there, I really started writing a lot about music for street press and, and things like that. Um, and we did that um, really until we went our separate ways. And around that period, I think, you know, when you suffer a breakup, I decided to focus more on my uni studies uh, because I'd really neglected what I was meant to be doing, which was which was studying. Um, and I was doing film studies. And I think all the energy from my freelance writing on music really turned towards film studies, academic film studies. But I think after I finished my master's thesis, my ego just came back. <laughs> and it's, it's great that I've read, you know, it's great that I've written this thesis. It's great that I've done all this sort of, all these academic articles and things like that, but nobody reads them. I want to write for people. That was when I turned my master's thesis was really the sort of starting point for my first book, uh, which was on rape revenge film. And from there, I really quite consciously worked towards, I, I still am an academic. I have a PhD. I'm, I'm, that's where my, my, my money comes from. That's my day job. But to me, if I, if I, if I can't speak to people, then, you know, what's the point of it all? So I really like film criticism is where my voice is the strongest, I think. And it's very important to me to be what they call an academia public facing, but what I call just writing so people can understand you and hear you and not speaking in jargon. That sounds very negative. I think that academia does have positive things about it, but to me it's about balancing them. That sounds more positive. Some of my favourite books on film, most of my favourite books on film are written by academics and 
they're masterworks. They're just incredible, incredible books, but they cost $300, $400. You know, academic publishing is very much oriented towards libraries buying them, um, and they're lost. They're just lost. You know, you get the, the odd book that comes through, like Carol Clover's Men, Women and Chainsaws, I think, is the really classic one. You know, those kind of break breakthrough books that really cross both academic and public audiences. Adam Lowenstein's Shocking Representation, I think, comes close. And that's, that's without doubt, one of the books that had the biggest impact on me, not just as a film critic, but also as a horror fan. I think that that book probably had the impact on me that Men, Women and Chainsaws did. So they're out there, those books are out there. But I think that those kind of academics, you know, in a way, they're the kind of benchmark for me and that, you know, you can actually write books that really speak to people and not just other academics. It's okay to speak to other academics, but the, the goal to me is to speak to a whole bunch of people. So how did you get to work for Senses of Cinema? Well, we're based in Melbourne, uh, where I, I left Senses at the start of the year, but as you can tell, I'm still attached. I love it. It's, you know, <laughs> um, I was very sad to leave, but unfortunately a few things, um, just workload, I just, I just couldn't manage it anymore. So I was very sad to leave. I learned about Senses, I guess, when I was an undergraduate because my lecturer and a wonderful man who would become my honours and my master's thesis supervisor, he was the editor at the time, a guy called Rolando Caputo at La Trobe University. Through him, I mean, Melbourne's a small town, so I knew, I've known people that have been involved. My friend Cerise Howard, from, who's a film critic and from the Czech and Slovak Film Festival, she was involved for a long, long time. The wonderful Michelle Carey, who was the artistic director of the Melbourne International Film Festival until very, very recently. She's just moved to Germany. But she's been involved in Censors for over 15 years. She's been there almost as long as it's been running. Not quite, but she certainly came on board quite early. And she's she's still there. So I knew people. Yeah, it was this sort of stars and alignment that um, I, I'd already had experience in editing. Um, and again, straddling both academia, academia and mainstream film criticism was um, a really good fit for Censors of Cinema. And I loved it. I just had a ball. It was such an extraordinary experience. Did I read that you're also a podcaster as well? I was a film critic on a community radio film criticism program here in Melbourne. The station's called Triple R. It's quite uh, quite legendary, quite iconic cultural institution in the town that I live in. And I was a film critic on that show for three years um, called Plato's Cave, which is still going. Some wonderful friends of mine are still there. And that was also podcast, so that that most people outside of Melbourne would hear that as a uh, access that as a podcast. But it was actually a live broadcast, so we didn't edit or anything like that. We would go into a radio studio and broadcast live once a week um, on a Monday night, and the others still do. Um, but that it would be recorded and then distributed as a podcast. Your rape and revenge book is fantastic, and I'm I have yet to read your Ms. Forty Five book, but I am curious how that came to be. That's a really good question. Well, Thana, uh, Zoe Tamalus-Lund is on the cover of my Rape Revenge book, so my first book that came out in 2011. And quite simply, I hadn't finished with her. When I finished the Rape Revenge book, I vowed that I would never go back to that subject again because, you know, you watch a lot of nasty stuff. It was a really important project to me, and it still is, and um, it's work that I think I will go back to again in the future, perhaps from a different angle, but it's something that I find endlessly fascinating and endlessly relevant and I think more so now perhaps than even when that book came out you know seven years ago but the cultography series was edited by two wonderful people whose work I had a lot of respect for 
and yeah, I, I put in an application to to do a, a single a single focus book. So sort of like the Suspiria book, but one specifically on on this forty five. And it was really nice to just sit down and take the time with that film that that I really think I, I needed to um, because I knew that it was a really important film for a whole bunch of reasons um, and just having the space to be able to work through that on its own merits, not trying to sort of talk about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of other films at the same time. It was a really great experience. I got a lot out of writing that book. I know it's always difficult for an author when they write about something and it continues on. It continues to have a life of its own. So you've written both about rape revenge films, and then another one of your books is found footage horror films. And both of those genres just continue going and probably will until the end of time. It's got to be a little frustrating for you, though, to continue to see these other movies that are coming out and be like, gosh, I wish I could write about those right now and put those back in my book. When I wrote the Rape Revenge book, there was very little out there. There was Carol Clover, of course, does great work in Men, Women, and Chainsaws on it. There's a book uh, by a, a wonderful book by a woman called Jacinda Reed called The New Avengers, um, which is really the first book dedicated specifically to rape revenge film. It's a really interesting read. And then, and then came my book. Now, there's been other books since then. There's been books more on, you know, violent women and things like that, which which are great. So the dialogue is still going and the, the conversation is still going. So with Rape Revenge, I feel that I could come back to it with, with Miss 45. And I'm really at the moment in the very, very early stages of working on a project that's hugely, that I feel extremely passionate about, um, which is a subject that I feel has been ignored in, in many, many ways, which is about the representation of sexual violence in films made by women directors. So that's something that I'm working quite heavily on at the moment so that will of course take me towards rape revenge as well because that's something in the past there hasn't there's certainly been some rape revenge films made by women but we are seeing i think quite a lot more but even just in general just representations of sexual violence um in films directed by women i think is a subject so yeah there's always ways back if you know what i mean so not to go back and do the same project but to pick up the pick up the conversation and just keep it moving found footage i i have to say with found footage i haven't felt the need to continue that conversation because so many other people are doing such great work. And I feel that I guess that was slightly different from the Rape Revenge book in that there wasn't any other book really at the time when that book came out. So I was sort of just etching, sort of, you know, just making the preliminary little scratches in the ground on the subject. And other people have come along and done wonderful, wonderful work on, you know, the idea of digital horror more generally. So I think for me that book really was mostly about the prehistory um, so looking back at the, you know, looking back at the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast and things like that, you know, how do these things all fit in to what we saw as that explosion of found footage horror? Again, one of the things I've been really curious about with found footage, though, is that when I wrote that book, there was one that I could find, and I watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of found footage films. I found one directed by a woman. For some reason, there's just not a lot of found footage horror films directed by women, but that's really started to change as well. So that that's something that I think is quite interesting. Over the last few years, we've had more and more women turning towards found footage, or perhaps they're just getting more distribution or more, you know, there's more noise around it. Maybe we're just hearing about them a little more. They're not so buried. Well, tell me, how did uh, the Devil's Advocate book on Suspiria come about? My wonderful, wonderful friend, Neil Mitchell, uh, wrote a book for Devil's Advocate on Carrie, um, which if you haven't read, is essential reading, absolutely essential. Neil's a wonderful person. Another buddy of mine, Martin Conterio, wrote a book on Mario Barber's Black Sunday, 
now in retrospect we're almost a little team amy uh amy simmons wrote a great book on lars von Trier's antichrist in the same series kat ellinger's written a book in the same series there's a whole bunch of people um who are, who are now involved with that series um and of course um auteur now do uh constellations which is a science fiction sort of sister series i guess to to devil's advocate so I, I I just put in a proposal. I contacted the publisher, who's a beautiful man. He's a really kind, supportive publisher, with, and and I very politely asked to join his his little family, and and he let me he let me write a book. And I I went to him with maybe a list of about five or six films, and we just chatted away until we decided that that this was the one. So why was it the one? Why Suspiria? To me, and I guess the argument in the whole book is that Suspiria is so difficult to talk about in the ways that we talk about other film, which presents a very unique challenge if you want to write a 30,000-word book about it. <laughs> Every now and then I'll have a friend or I'll, I'll meet somebody and, and they'll oh, Suspiria, or I'll watch it. And they're like, yeah, I didn't get it. There's not much of a story. There's no characters and, and you know, the character development's pretty simple and I just go blank. It's like... That, yes, you know, maybe. <laughs> There's, that's not how you engage with this film. That might be how you engage with other film, but this film doesn't work like that. It demands that we engage in a completely different way. And I found that a real challenge to write about. How do you write about a film that demands that you feel your way through it rather than think your way through it was really the, the challenge presented by Suspiria. Part of it is is pretty nuts and bolts making of and who the cast were and things like that. But the stuff that I found really interesting was the real just digging into the dirt. You know, what makes this film tick? How does how do we feel our way through this film? How does that sensory overload manifest and where does it leave us and where does it take us? And what do we, you know, the kind of trust processes, I guess, in that, you know, when you don't have things like plot and character as your sort of safety net, what, what does that leave you? Where do you go, and how do you how do you understand the experience of cinema when you don't have those things? You've mentioned a lot about female filmmakers, and you definitely have a bent towards women in cinema. And I'm curious, as far as this is a film starring so many women, but directed by a man, does that kind of throw a kink in your discussion? Not at all. Women's filmmaking is something that's very uh, front and center for me at the moment for a whole bunch of different reasons. But I don't think of Suspiria as a film made by a male director. I think of it as a film made by Dario Argento in the same way that I think about an Ida Lupino film, film as an Ida Lupino film, not a film made by a woman director. It's first and foremost an Ida Lupino film. Um, it's first and foremost a Claire Denis film. It's first and foremost a Dario Argento film. And I think that there is, an, there is a curious, complex relationship to gender in Dario Argento's films, I think. He, I mean, he has said himself, you know, he, most of his fans are women. And I can certainly say just anecdotally that that's my experience too, that Argento, for, for most of the women that I know who are into horror, slasher films and Dario Argento are the two, the pathway drugs. Certainly that was that was definitely the case for me. And just for so many women I know that, that that's, that's really true. I mean, you can't make broad gender generalizations like that, of course. But, yeah, just anecdotally I'd say that, you know, when, when I read that he said, yeah, most of my fans are women, I wasn't surprised that that wasn't out, outside of my understanding of, of who it is who really connect to his movies, uh, Suspiria especially. Like you said, it's it's a it's an all woman cast virtually. There are male characters in there, but they're very very small. There's a question 
to authorship as far as the movie goes, as far as Daria Nicolodi's role in the authorship of the film, because I've heard various stories as far as how much she was involved or not involved. And I was curious as far as through your research, what your opinion is of that. There's an old William Burroughs quote, which is never get involved in a boy girl thing. That was my approach as a writer, um, because it really came down to where he says, she says, I don't think for me that there's any, there's not going to be some research discovery that reveals that. Maybe there will be, maybe there will be, but if there was, I couldn't find it. So I, I respect both of their opinions in the sense that I feel that they both feel very strongly about them. It's that classic thing where, you know, the person A says something, person B says something else, and the truth is perhaps somewhere in the middle. Um, but that all being said, I don't think that anybody would deny Dari Nicolodi's impact on Dario Argento's filmmaking during that period in general. Um, you know, she does that great cameo in Suspiria, which is just wonderful. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't think that, I mean, there's no, there's no question. And I'm sure that Dario Argento himself would be the first to agree there would, that Suspiria as we know it today wouldn't exist without Dario Nicolodi. The degree to which is up for debate, but I, I don't think that's up for question. I think that her, her presence in that film is um, not just in front of the camera, but behind it. I think that it's undeniable. Suspiria is a tough nut to crack. And I want to know, how did you go about doing your research for this and, and trying to put together what you ended up writing about for the Devil's Advocate book? Some stuff I think is pretty, like I said, you know, things like, um, you know, who, who did the production design? You know, who was cast in the film? What had they been in earlier? Things like that are, are pretty straightforward. Um, so, you know, the kind of making of stuff, you, you can kind of map out pretty easily. The real challenge of this film, I think, is the stuff that I love doing the most, which is the close analysis, that scene-by-scene immersion um, into the film. And that's that's what the bulk of the book is in a way. You know, it really is this sort of, okay, let's walk, to, let's just walk through the film and talk about what's what we're seeing and what we're hearing and what we're feeling and what we're looking at. That's where the magic happens in film analysis and film criticism. Once you start thinking that stuff through, uh, is really where the, the excitement is because sometimes there's things that you just can't describe. And I think most of Suspiria is that, you know, you can't describe what magic is. You can't describe what poetry is. It's poetry. It's magic. It's there. It's, it, it is what it is. Um, so being able to find a way to talk about that experience was very challenging for me, but also to be able to think about things like gender politics and uh, which is often overlooked, I think, in Suspiria. Especially, you know, I mean, I think one of my favorite, I have odd little favorite moments in the film. I, I think the end scene of Susie coming out smiling is radical cinema. The fact that it's a horror film where the, the, the female protagonist leaves smiling is wonderful. You know, she's not screaming. She's not suffering from PTSD. She's fine. You know, she's absolutely fine. She's going to be fine. She's gone through this horrible thing and she's come out a better person. I love that they throw in the idea of a, um, a kind of boy, you know, a love interest that just completely dissipates. You know, it's it's really thrown in there for a joke. I think Suspiria is a very funny film. I think a lot of Argento's films are funny. I think Deep Red is hilarious. But I love that, you know, that the, yeah, there's this little kind of, oh, there's a boy and he likes her. And it sort of starts off going where you think it's going to go. And it's like, no, nah, we've got, I've got no time for this shit. <laughs> i got witches to deal with. <laughs> I've got real things to do. I don't need no crap boy. One of the funniest things I think about Suspiria is that it's a dance movie where nobody really dances. 
you know, the one scene where we see the big lead up to Susie finally performing, she passes out. You know, she gets the nosebleed and she collapses. I think that's hilarious. The idea of setting a film at a ballet school and not showing any dancing. I think it's really audacious. We're 40 years on and your book comes out. We've got the restoration. We've got 35 millimeter print that gets found and gets toured around. And then we have the remake coming out. What is it about all of these things happening so many years later that says that Suspiria is still such an important film? I think it's exactly the fact that you can't put your finger on its power. It just It's such a sensory experience. It just demands that you, all the ways that you're used to enjoying film don't work with Suspiria. You have to reprogram yourself to enjoy an experience in a completely different way. And I think it's a way that's timeless, not specific to a particular historical moment in that just the aggression of that film, you know, the sound and the, the vision and it's the color it's unrelenting and it's in your face and it, it just doesn't stop. Uh, it's, it's unapologetic about its presence and its demand on you as, a, as an audience member. It's such a demanding film. And I, I think that we experience that assault as strongly now as audiences did all those years ago. How did you manage to connect with the uh, cinematographer, Luciano Tavoli? I emailed him. And um, he very kindly replied, and we had a very long conversation in email, and he was um, extremely generous with his time and his thoughts. And I, I always like talking to cinematographers. I find that they're very – I mean, I think anybody involved in filmmaking is an interesting person. Um, and sometimes you get different things from people that aren't in those privileged positions of director, uh, which is not to say that I don't think Dario Argento or Dario uh, Nicolodi would have interesting to, things to say about the film. Of course they, they do, and they have. But Tavoli has been spoken to less, and he was uh, unequivocal about the fact that this was a Dario Argento film. He was very clear that he was under the direction, you know, it wasn't him going, you know. Dario Argento gave him permission to experiment, um, and he said that it, it was in, it, to experiment in ways that were very much outside of his comfort zone. Tavoli's impact on this film can't be, I think it's as, uh, equally as strong as that of the soundtrack and Goblin. Um, there would be no Suspiria without... Luciano Tavoli, there would be no Suspiria without Goblin. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the gender politics that we discussed a little bit before. There are the male characters, but they are, I mean, there's just, it's a pittance. There's just a handful of them, which makes them almost stand out more just because there are so few of them. And each of them are odd. I mean, there, there's the boy that you mentioned, there's the piano player, and then there's your favorite and my favorite, which is Pablo, who is just, my God, he is captivating. I'm obsessed with Pablo. I met uh, a, a young woman from France found me on Twitter, and she, she shares our obsession. We need to form like a little gang. Of <laughs> I'm obsessed with him. That moment where he smiles is just... <laughs> Like, like I said, I think Suspiria is really funny and deliberately funny. I think that um, Dario Argento's comic comedic skills have, have perhaps been a little, you know, less appreciated as, as they deserve. I think Pablo's hilarious. How he can be so terrifying and so funny at the same time is just it's barely on screen, but I, I just think he's one of the most memorable characters in the entire film with his beautiful teeth. Well, of course, we have uh, so many doctors and professors going on as well, including uh, everybody's favorite, Udo Kier. That's a really precious, I know that's a really overinflated word perhaps, but I think that sequence is so precious for so many reasons. 
it of course has our, you know, that famous line, the broken mirrors, broken minds line, which made the Madonna, you know, her wonderful book on Dario Argento that so many of us, I think, you know, have dog-eared copies of. Um, it's the Bible, you know, her book on, on Argento is really the Bible. That scene is so important a, in terms of just if you think about what it's doing. So we have this young man, young scientist saying, no, there's no such thing as witches. It's all psychology. It's all psychiatry. We don't believe that stuff anymore. Um, but I'll let you talk to my, you know, my superior. And the superior is like, oh, hell yeah, this stuff's real. Like, so he completely contradicts it. But what makes that sequence so special is that it's in daylight. It's it's the closest we really get in the film to quote unquote natural light. Um, so you think that, you know, for a moment, especially considering Luciano Tavoli's background in Italian realism, you know, working with Michelangelo Antonioni and on The Passenger with Jack Nicholson, you think, oh, you know, we're going to get this great little natural quote unquote realistic moment. And we don't. Um, the, the more that the older professor talks, we get this amazing kaleidoscopic effect with the camera zooming in slowly to he and Susie um, and the reflections in the mirror in the background with the clouds and it just becomes distorted. It just becomes this surreal, abstracted chaos, you know, and the idea, the fact that we're outside in the daylight, it, it, as their conversation takes us deeper and deeper into superstition and folklore, reality just falls apart. Um, and it's one of those beautiful moments that in the film, and there's many of them, but it's just, it, it's just in complete synchronicity where what we're hearing and what we're seeing are working down to the microscopic detail, the most microscopic detail, they're just working in such harmony. It's a, it's an extraordinary sequence. So on one hand, we have Pablo and 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 the young male ballet dancer. They're in, you know, and then the piano player, you know. So we have on one hand men who are employees, and then on the other hand, we have powerful men. We have doctors and academics. So there's this sort of split. But at the end of the day, they're they're both kind of irrelevant. And I think that's really interesting. One of the things that I find really fascinating about this film is that in the Italian version, the opening narration was done by Argento himself. I love that documentary style opening, you know, this male voice, the voice of authority. You know, in documentary film studies, we call it the voice of God. You know, the, this on this day, at this time, this happened. Duh, 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 here are the facts. And, of course, everything after that, the second that those doors open, it's there is no facts there are no facts it all goes to hell so this male authority has just shattered to the ground under the under the just in the face of the presence of this extraordinary feminine power it just collapses there's no it means nothing it just can't stand up and and that feminine power is not just the witches but it's also Susie. also in the mix is is it albert the young boy who's let's say that he's a little effeminate at times He's wonderful. He, I, I loved him in Deep Red, and that he's in Suspiria. I think, I think he only did a couple of other films. If that, you know, he didn't have a particularly extensive career. But those two films, what presence! Um, he's very deliberately rendered feminine in both Deep Red and Suspiria. I mean, in, in in Deep Red, it's part of the plot, but I think in Suspiria, he functions. I think almost like a kind of witch's familiar. You know, he's almost like a pet. He's not a masculine presence, I think, in terms of gender politics. I think he's, you know, he's he's like a, a witch's helper. Um, he's a curious, curious little presence. My favourite scene in the film, my favourite film, and I know it's a bit adolescent to say, oh, my favourite part of any movie ever, but I, I can really comfortably say that there's very few scenes in a movie that come close to that scene where um, the the cook 
and the young boys are in the corridor polishing the silverware and they flash the silverware into into Susie's eyes and bewitch her. That sequence, it goes for a couple of minutes. It's extraordinary. That was one of um, Kathy Acker's favourite scenes too, I think, the American author, very famous feminist postmodern author. Um, there's something about that sequence and um, his presence, I think, is you know is really essential to what makes that scene so magical. That's a really great scene that, that that defines that magic. You know, if you describe what's happening, it sounds like nothing. Nothing's really happening, but the intensity of the moment is it's it's mind blowing. The experience of it, the sensation of it, is there's nothing that comes close. Well, it feels like time stops in the way that there's that. I don't even know what it is, like floating through the air. It looks like dust or silver or something going on. It just looks spectacular. I did that super nerdy thing that you're meant to do when you write a book, Um, and I played that sequence back frame by frame. And if you're a big Suspiria nerd, I I recommend that you do it because the second that the light hits Susie's eyes, the young boy smiles. His face is completely deadpan until the second that the light hits her eyes. And the entire time that the light is in her eyes, he's grinning. He's absolutely beaming. And then the second that it drops, his facial expression goes back. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I don't know how, you know, like today we can do that. You know, even, even you know, in the 80s with the VHS, you know, you could have paused, 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 paused. You might have seen it, but it's only with, you know, VLC that you can do frame by frame. I'm not sure what, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> Putting that, that much detail in there. It's incredible. All right. Well, as a fellow Suspiria nerd, I am very curious when Susie's going through the forest in the taxi cab, the one of the first scenes that we get, there's a flash of lightning and it looks like there's a shadow of something on one of the main trees right in the foreground. Do you see that as well? No, but I believe you, and I'm going to watch again. Um, there's a wonderful book on Dario Argento by an Irish gentleman called James Gracie that I can't recommend strongly enough. James is a wonderful, wonderful person, a great writer. Um, he actually did a Devil's Advocate book on Company of Wolves, which is definitely worth a read as well. But he, James has a great story about seeing Suspiria for the first time at the cinema, which he only saw in recent years. You know, he'd seen it on DVD a billion thousand times, but then he saw it at the cinema and there's a scene, and I'm trying to remember where it was. It's a green sequence. I think it's, I think it's when Sarah is killed. Um, you know, so she sort of falls into the room full of the barbed wire, and you know that that amazing sequence. But there's um, a sequence in there where he, there's a presence behind her that you don't see watching it on a small screen. But in the cinema, when it's big, you know, he saw it for the first time, and he's, he, you know, he was like, I've seen this film so many times. And yet there's still stuff in there that I haven't seen before. So I believe you. I'm going to look. I haven't seen it, but I don't doubt you for a second because I still think that there's a ton of stuff in Suspiria that I haven't seen. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but I've got you on the phone and this is kind of your specialty. So I want to continue to harp on the gender politics of this because it's interesting to me that we've talked about the male characters and just how they're kind of ineffectual, the workers, the men of authority, and neither one of them matter. But yet we have the women here and it's a story of women, but women pitted against each other as far as this whole idea of the the coven and trying, are they trying to bring Susie in? What is their end game with this? The wonderful Barbara Magnolfi, who's my queen. She plays Olga. My Again, one of my favorite characters in this film. She's not on screen very long, but I love Olga so much. 
Um, Barbara is a wonderful woman. She had an has an extraordinary career. Um, she was in a great gialli called The Sister of Ursula. I'm not sure if you've seen that with um, her late husband, Mark Perel. It's a dirty little gialli, but it's so much fun. It's really great. Yeah. Barbara's wonderful, and I spoke to her. Uh, we did a big interview together after my book came out. It was only then that I was able to get in contact with her, which was a shame because I would have loved to have included that interview in the book. Um, and she did a, you know, she did a help me launch my book. She did a video for my book launch and things like that. So she's been very kind. And we did this interview and she was saying that she came on board. Argento was very interested in her because she trained as a ballet dancer since she was a very small child. I think she was about four years old when she started performing. Um, so she found it funny that she doesn't actually dance in the film, but he wanted people that could dance, you know, same with uh, Jessica Harper. You know, he wanted dancers. He wasn't necessarily going to make them dance, but he wanted them there. Anyway, Barbara was saying um, that Olga was actually, you know, originally when they were talking about the character that she was, um, there was more concrete involvement um, in that the her understanding, and this interview is online, so um, if you go to 43 the website for three film, um, you'll find my interview with Barbara. But she was saying, yeah, that, that she was basically recruiting for the coven, that she would recruit from the students. That was her role. That Argento's nickname for her was, uh, my Italian's terrible, so I won't say it in Italian, but it was basically the little witch. She was the witch and that that was her job. And I think you can see traces of that in there. I don't think it's that that, that line was consciously written out. I think you can still sense that in Olga's character, that, that in terms of power, you know, that she she's she does have power, you know, she she does have I think she's more than just a bitchy student. I think that you do get the feeling that there's real privilege and a sense of power to her. When she told me that, it's like of course that actually makes perfect sense. The scene in her mate, you know, the, um, when Susie comes to her house quite early on and they're in that extraordinary black and white wallpaper department and nails the close up of Barbara painting her nails and that amazing, she's got her hair in this huge bun. She's sitting in the foreground. She's just glorious, such presence, such a great performer. Does she age at all? She, like today, she looks almost exactly the same as she did back then. She's kind and talented and has a genuine connection with humanity. I I can't speak more highly of my experience with Barbara Magnolfi. She was um, extremely kind to me and she has such passion for cinema. And uh, is genuinely delighted that people still find something in her performance. I think you know there's a real connection there. Um, it's really beautiful. It's a really lovely, sincere connection that she has. I think with that film and with people connected to that film. And it's so nice too the way that Argento uses Alita Valley and Joan Bennett in there as these. You know, the, I mean, they have such presence and they have such rich cinematic history. Alita Valley is like you know, I mean. She's a just a force of nature in case it's just, you know, I mean, she was made for Gialli in a way. She was just ready. And I think that um, Joan Bennett as well, you know, all that amazing work, you know, early in her career in film noir and then things like uh, Dark Shadows, you know, she, it's, just, it's such a perfect fit. These, these women that are just these extraordinary, you know, they just have this presence, um, this fearlessness that he has, particularly during that era of his filmmaking, of showing these strong women outside of that dominant norm of teenagers. You know, he, he really wanted to show you. Um, I mean, we had that wonderful performance by Clara uh, Calame in Deep Red, um, which is really just the perfect bookend to her career. Uh, really, I think it's one of the great 
finales. You like one of the great moments of 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 a of a, of a superstar bowing out is um is Calame's performance in Deep Red. I think she's just wonderful. So he really gets it. I think that you know he really gets he, during that period he really understood to work the the power of working with women of that caliber and who had that kind of social or cultural impact. You know he understood the size of who they were and what that meant and how to how to really work that into a genre film. So as you're researching and writing about Suspiria, I'm curious as far as what you found the most surprising and what was the most satisfying for you as far as this experience. This sounds kind of simplistic, so bear with me, but formalizing the fact that it's okay to like a film that isn't 100% focused on its creating its impact through plot and character. Um, because most of my favorite films, in fact, all of my favorite films don't do that. And it doesn't mean that I, I hate those things or, you know, I reject those things or I can't admire them when I do see them done well. But it was great for me to find a way to formalize a language to talk about film being important to me and being important for all of us, even when it works outside of those norms. So for me, it was almost like a kind of uh, writing challenge. How do I write about a film? that doesn't really demand a kind of traditional intellectual res- response. You know, it doesn't work through identification or, yeah, plot. You know, there's no complex story arc. It's not – I mean, I think that there is stuff going on in the plot and I think that there is stuff going on with the characters, so I'm not dismissing that. And I, I do believe that quite a lot of work was done on the, that front, and I certainly don't, miss to dis- I don't mean to disregard that. But like I said, you know, the impact of Suspiria to me is this, it's just this assault, this sensory assault. And to be able to talk about that as being just as valuable an experience as connecting with a character or, you know, being moved by a story was really important to me personally. I've talked to authors of other Devil's Advocates and Cultographies books, and the thing that I've heard time and again is that while the shorter length is appreciated, that when you get passionate about a project, like so many of us are, that it's difficult to stay within those boundaries of 30,000-ish words. So was that also a problem for you? I have to say no in a way, in that my first two books were survey books, and I've done two books since. So I, I did the Rape Revenge book and Found Footage Horror book, which were really looking at entire categories. So they were really surveying um, subgenres, I guess. I, I don't think that rape revenge is a subgenre, but you get what I mean. And then I did three books that were these sort of short monographs on single films, and I love them. I love, I love that exercise. I, I just um, that that gift of being to able to immerse yourself in one film um, is a gift. And and all three films, Hitcher, Ms. Forty Five, and Suspiria, um, I, I valued those experiences immensely. <laughs> um, and since then, I've gone on to do. Uh, I've written two more books, uh, which I guess are more survey books. You know, they're kind of looking at bigger picture things, which is not to say that I don't think that there's material in those smaller books that wouldn't fit into a survey book or into a bigger book. And I I guess Ms. 45 and the Rape Revenge book are the kind of um, obvious pairing there um, in that I could do a kind of big book on one subject and then do a deep dive in another book into one single film. And that's been really great. Um, Suspiria, I'm working on a book at the moment actually on giallo and the use of art, so the use of paintings and sculptures and things like that within giallo film, um, which is a, a subject that I, I have a real, really long-term interest in. I've published shorter articles about that, but it's 
it was almost um, accidental that I realised that that was the thing that kept drawing me to my favourite Gialli, was that they all use paintings or, or artworks in some way. So that in a way feels like it's bouncing back towards Suspiria. It's not redoing the project, but it feels like those ideas are continuing through to another project. So it, it I, yeah, like when, when you get up to, when I'm, now that I'm at like, you know, book seven and eight and nine, it's, I can feel more of a kind of dialogue almost between the books themselves. Now these threads of things that I'm interested in are sort of still flowing, which is nice. But there's also, t- you know, time to do new new projects too, which is really good and really healthy, I think, rather than just mining the same thing over and over and over again, which would be boring for me. It'd be boring for readers. Tell me, how did you come to write the book about the Hitcher? I was approached by Arrow Video and Arrow Films in the UK. Um, they were uh, launching a publishing arm, I guess, and they've published some great books. They have a wonderful book on uh, Mikakaji. Kat Ellinger, of course, did that incredible book on Sergio Martino, which is essential and we should all own it. And, yeah, they said, what are you, you know, Hugh, you're a bit of a fan of the Hitcher. And I was like, am I? <laughs> Um, and the rest, as they say, is history. So that was really exciting. That was great. I, I didn't pitch that. They came to me and it was just harmony because I've, I've just had um, been in my bonnet about that film for a really long time. It was a, a film that I really needed to talk about and think about. And I, I think that I'd really avoided it because I think it's quite a challenging film. And I'm really glad that I did. It, it made me think differently about film in general, the way that, especially the way that gender works. You know, and what we think of as a quote-unquote masculine film, sometimes we need to actually just shut up and watch carefully and pay attention to what's happening because I think the gender politics in The Hitcher is very, very complex and very interesting. That movie, I mean, it still packs a wallop. I can't think of the scene with them threatening to pull Jennifer Jason Lee apart with the trucks. Oh, my God. It's incredible. I mean, it's incredible what happens in that film. And where it goes after that, I just think it's extraordinary. A really thoughtful film, really thoughtful performances. A very dense, very densely packed movie. And, yeah, that, that scene in particular and all the events leading up to that were really, really challenging for me. It's like I think when you do this kind of work, you know, you, you, you don't want to be defensive. You know, how do I – you don't want to be like, oh, how do I defend this film? It's like, well, the film's fine. The film doesn't need me to defend it. That's not my job. You know, that's – it just needs me to think about it. And that's much harder rather than, you know, these kind of simplistic, oh, it's sexist or, oh, it's not. You know, we don't need these kind of black and white reductions. Um, we need deep thought. And I think that um, film is very often, especially horror film, is very, very often contradictory on many fronts, certainly on politics. I think that you can have films that are very progressive on one aspect and then not in others. And I think that that's okay. I don't think that we do ourselves any favours by trying to, you know, write films off as either or. And I think The Hitcher is a really perfect example of that, about how a film can be really, really difficult and still have really important and interesting things to say. Tell me about 1,000 Women in Horror. Start with number one and then work up from there. Start with Alia. I'm not going to go through each each person. You have to read the book to find out. Although what I will, um, Brittany Murphy, who doesn't get enough credit for her horror work, um, she's number 666, which was an accident, but I, I think that she would have liked that. Yeah, look, I, I've gone through a journey. Um, at, around this time last year, I'm sure that you might remember, quite a few people do, I think, there was quite um, a, a radical change 
um, a series of, event, of events in the film industry and in the entertainment industry really led to some questions coming to the forefront about gender politics and um, power that affected a lot of people around the world. And I was one of those people. It became very, to cut a very long story short, it became in the kind of psychological fallout from that that I think a lot of us experienced and are still experiencing. It became very important to me to really, I'd already been doing a lot of work on women filmmakers, um, but it kind of just felt more urgent and more important that that's where I put my attention. You know, what are the gaps? Who's been overlooked? And that really is what led to the 1,000 Women in Horror project. I've done a few other projects. I co-edited a book on uh, Helene Catet and Bruno Filzani, the um, Belgian-based French filmmakers. We co-edited that earlier this year, which was wonderful. And I'm currently co-editing a book on Elaine May. So I'm doing a lot of work on women filmmaking, women's filmmaking at the moment. In 2016, no, 2017, I co-curated a uh, program at the Melbourne International Film Festival on Australian women's filmmaking in the 80s and 90s. Um, and that was around July last year. So this is something that I've been interested in for a long time. But yeah, the 1000 Women in Horror Project was really a chance for me to sit down and say, okay, you know what? We've, you know, I've got, I, I love the boys of horror. I love them. I've written books about the boys of horror, but maybe it's time that I put my attention onto people that aren't the boys of horror for a while. And um, it's been a very, very intense learning curve. I've learned a lot during the process of writing this book um, that has been a wonderful experience, a very difficult book to write. But, yeah, there's real treasures in there. When is that coming out? Uh, I'm just about to submit the manuscript, so I'm hoping early next year. Um, I don't have a release date for that yet, um, but I will be making a lot of noise when there is a, pre, a pre-order a pre available. Don't worry about it. <laughs> You'll hear me shouting from my front step. Well, I guess to that end, where's the best place for people to keep up with you and your work? Twitter. I'm one of the few people not on Facebook because I, I think it's Satan's workshop. Twitter is also a toilet, don't get me wrong, but um, it's a space that <laughs> it's a space that I'm a little more comfortable with. So I'm on Twitter um, at, at Suspiria Alex, and that also links to my website. If you have a look at my profile there, I have a website which has all my work and things like that on it. I'm on Rotten Tomatoes as well, so my more... Um, you know, my film reviews and things like that. But in terms of the bigger books and bigger projects, definitely Twitter and my website are the place to find me. Alex, thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful talking with you. It's been a delight. Thank you for having me. Thank you for chatting. Well, Claire Nina, we spoke a about a year ago about the work of Angelo Badalamente and what he was doing with Twin Peaks, specifically in relation to Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. And I hear you've been doing some research on Goblin lately. Yeah, I was just working on uh, just a small essay piece for Movies Notebook. Um, I do like a monthly column. So I thought given the, the new film is coming out, the Luca Guadagnino version of um, Suspiria, I thought it might be a good time to revisit the original uh, soundtrack. Um, I've written about it very briefly before, but this this time I thought it'd be nice just to do a little bit more of an exploration. The music is so crucial to the movie, I don't even really think you can divorce the two, because I think without that soundtrack, the movie would just be kind of stillborn. 
Absolutely. I was I was just rewatching it the other day actually and I was and because this time I was actually like in the past I've I've sort of um, been more absorbed in the visuals, but because obviously I'm writing an article about the music, I was really, really um noticing just how important the score is uh to that film it does so much of the heavy lifting in terms of you know because obviously they're they're trying to establish establish a supernatural presence in that film and it really struck me that there is very little visual effects in terms of showing the witches um and how the music really was uh responsible for um creating that atmosphere it's often very overwhelming. Like, um, obviously, watching it at home, it's a bit different. But one thing I've noticed um, when I've gone and seen it in the cinema is it's often so loud um, that the actual score, in that way, it sort of um, overwhelms you. Just in the same way that Susie is kind of overwhelmed by this this experience that she's having because she sort of, as in the moment she gets off that that plane, it's just com- complete chaos from uh, beginning to end her experience of just going to this ballet school. So um, the music really reflects that. From what I understand with Goblin, they had a lot more freedom to experiment with this score. Obviously, they'd done Profundo Russo um, just prior to this, and they sort of came in after the the composer who was originally meant to, to compose the score for that film. It just didn't work out with Dario Argento, so he, he got Goblin very quickly for that film. So they had to do it in, in some insane time period um, and bust it out. It was more of a prog rock score, but with Suspiria, they had a lot more time to experiment, so they thought they would try out different instrumentation. Like, obviously, the uh, bazooki, the, it's sort of like a, a Greek mandolin was used. And I actually read that Massimo Moranti, the guitarist, said that he had chosen that that sound because obviously um, the head witch, uh, what was her name, uh, Helena Marcos, she's Greek, so he thought, I'll use a Greek instrument. But what, even though um, that's like seems a very sort of um, obvious choice, at the same time, it's such a unique sound. It's not something you, you hear quite a lot in film scores, and it, it really, along with that uh, Celesta kind of chimey nursery rhyme sort of motif. You, you hear a lot of this bazooki guitar, um, but mandolin, sorry. That's quite a unique sound. It's quite prickly at times. Yeah, I have never gone through and matched up when the music cues come up to say, like, this is this person's musical motif. Knowing you, I'm sure that you did something similar to that. Yeah, I sort of was um, following it um, because obviously the whole if you look at the soundtrack album, there's quite a lot of different tracks there, but often what happens is these composers will write a lot of music for a film and then only some of it might be edited into the film or pieced together and and cues are mixed up. So when you actually sort of trace the score compared to the actual soundtrack album, you notice that you only get sort of a few different cues that actually repeated throughout the film. And sometimes that repetition is helpful, especially in a horror film because – it indicates to the audience, obviously, that, okay, something's about to go down. You know, this theme is obviously played whenever uh, evil is lurking, and that often happens with, obviously, Suspiria. You you know that the evil is is around the corner. Though it feels like that soundtrack is there all the time, so there are very few times when it feels like evil is not right around the corner. Yeah, and it's almost when when it's not uh, being used – the silence is almost deafening. Like you really notice the silence. Like I was when I was watching, I noticed when she was walking down a corridor before the the um, theme kicked in, it was really quiet. And then also it's quiet in sort of that moment where um, the blind pianist is walking through the square, and then the you know one of the musical motifs starts again. And that's another instance in which 
really not much is shown on screen apart from this poor man sort of walking in, in, in this very darkened square. But the music is, is contributing this idea that these witches are flying overhead and there's not a huge amount of visual cues. It's, it's all built up with the music. How great of a piano player is Daniel since he can kind of conjure an entire orchestra through that one piano? Oh, in terms of his accompaniment? Sometimes I find that, like, I've watched the film so many times, but I, I swear I've watched a couple of different versions. Yeah, I know for sure there's one, well, there there was the Italian opening with Dario Argento doing the opening narration himself, and then the American opening, and I'm sure throughout all the other countries they had their own beginnings and endings and their own dubs, so I'm curious if the music was mixed in different ways for different countries. Last night I watched just on the, the local streaming service here in Australia and um, I'm pretty sure it must have been the, well, it was the Italian version. I've never seen it before with Italian subtitles and obviously the opening narration by Argento because my DVD version is obviously dubbed in English. I'm pretty sure most of the times when I've seen it at cinema, it's been dubbed as well. So I could the last bit time I watched it, it could have been a very different version. I'm not sure. I have to compare the two. Have you heard the John Medeski and Scott Harding version of Suspiria? No, I've never even heard of it. I'd have to look it out. Yeah, Stan Douglas is some sort of a visual artist, and he did a um, uh, like an installation called Suspiria, and then I picked up the soundtrack. It plays with some of the themes. It's kind of interesting. Like, there's a track called Lacrimarum and Tenebrarum and these kind of things, and so there's some hints of the Goblin soundtrack, but it's not a one-for-one kind of a remake of it. It's, it's a really tough thing to... Um sort of reapproach a sacred soundtrack. It's one thing to rescore a film where the soundtrack maybe was just stock music or not particularly interesting. But yeah, it would be tough to reapproach something like that. Well I'm curious, have you heard the Tom York remake version? I've just heard that one track, I think it's called Suspirium and um, like that that really pretty waltz. I really love it. So and I'm I'm a fan of Radiohead and Tom York, so I'm pretty excited about this this new new version of the film. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. I'm curious how the music's going to play with it. I mean, it feels like you can't necessarily do with music now what you could at one point. I don't know. But then I watched something like Mandy, and that's got music wall-to-wall, and it's very at the forefront at times. I'm really dying to see that film. I'm hoping it screens here at some point soon. I missed it when it was in the local film festival, but... From what I've read with Tom York, he's he's uh, sort of tried to do something very different, which I think is a very natural reaction when you're dealing with like such a cult score. So what I have heard of his his stuff is is it's almost like the complete opposite. It's so subdued and and lilting and almost romantic. So I'm curious to see if he's got like a bit of uh, sort of more con- like contrasting sort of um, more intense sort of music in the film as well. We talked about the fairy tale song. And I mean, the whole movie plays a lot like a fairy tale, but then you get those more driving, pounding rock songs in the original Suspiria. And just the contrast between those is so fantastic. Argento wanted it to be like a a fairy tale for for adults, from what I read. And yeah, you you, you, obviously, when you've got an instrument like the Celesta and the bells um, in that opening theme, it sort of plays with those connotations of uh, childhood innocence. And then obviously the rock music is at the more extreme end. And so when you've got those like big sort of big synth moments, um, I think they use like moves and things, 
and also that pounding percussion that's often used, like those drums are just relentless. So you've got this real extreme, you know, it's almost, I always think of it as almost like innocence versus evil if you want to oversimplify it in terms of the sound. I'm familiar with a lot of instruments, but I'm not familiar with the Celesta. What does that look like? It's almost like a little keyboard, like a little piano, like, um, you know, when you see like a little child's piano, it's almost a small, a small little keyboard like that. And it's very kind of, um, I believe, uh, like it's like metal plates, and so the hammers are hitting metal plates, and it comes it's like such a lovely sound. It's just one of my favorites. So when you decided that you were going to write about this, you talked about the why, but what about the how? How did you decide that you would approach this and, and try to tease out why this soundtrack is so important? The thing is, it has been written a bit, a bit about. So um, what I'm trying to do, like I've just, I haven't actually started writing the piece, but Often what I try to do is I try to, um, because my, my pieces are usually about a thousand words or so, I try to pick out one sort of strain to go with. And there's quite a few you can obviously go with with this film. There's a lot of different ways you can read it. So I'm not quite sure <laughs> in answer to your question what I'm, how I'm going to write about it yet. But I do feel like it will focus on the fact that the film, the film is very reliant in terms of its atmosphere on the music, which is often the case with horror films. So once you're done with everything, where can I read this piece? Um, this will be on Mubi's uh, notebook website. So um, Mubi is like the streaming platform, and they have a, a note part of their website is called Notebook, and it's got a lot of different articles about cinema. So like I said at the beginning, it's been a year since we've chatted, and I'm curious what else you've been working on since then. Um, well, I've got just the monthly articles that I write for movie. I've done a few other bits of pieces um, on the internet to do with film writing. Um, most of it's linked on my Twitter account. Yeah, I've done a, a couple of essays that will hopefully be published in the near future, and then just a couple of other little things I'm working on that hopefully will turn into something big, a book at some point. Not quite sure yet in terms of the book thing. <laughs> back and we were talking about Suspiria. They mention in Suspiria that Helena Marcos is one of these quote-unquote three mothers that are out there in the world and that there are other, for lack of a better term, hellmouths out there. That one is here at the Dance Academy, there's one in New York, and there's one, is it Rome? I'm trying to remember. Or is it someplace else in Italy? It's in Rome. Pretty quickly after Suspiria, there was Inferno, which was the, I don't want to say it was a sequel to Suspiria, but it talked about one of these other 
mother's characters pretty directly. They they really yeah, I mean it starts off with a book where they're talking about the three mothers, so they really kind of pick up that story and run with it. Many years after that, they ended the trilogy with Mother of Tears. Now I watched Inferno. I enjoyed Inferno. I enjoyed with like an asterisk to it. Enjoyed Inferno. I wasn't able to make it through Mother of Tears though, so I apologize. Um, as far as our conversation goes, I'm not going to be able to add a whole lot when it comes to Mother of Tears. I just had a real tough time watching it. I don't know if it was that I was watching a pan and scan version, so it was actually making me feel a little physically ill as I panned across really quickly on this widescreen movie to, to pan and scan it, because I hadn't seen a pan and scan movie in I don't know how many years, and I really don't miss it. My goodness, I don't miss that effect at all. I'll start with you, Maitland. What do you think about the other two Mothers films? They are not among my favorite films. I no two ways about it. Suspiria is absolutely the high watermark for the, the, the Mothers films. I can watch Mother of Tears. I don't love it. Really, I don't know what to say beyond that. Although these films were clearly meant to be a trilogy. I think Suspiria set a bar that the others don't live up to. Inferno, the the only kind of note that I took down about Inferno is that if Suspiria is about being part of something, because it's all these girls in battle in a, in a house, basically, that Inferno feels like it's a, all about the individual. Because it goes from one person to another person to another person, and there doesn't, I don't know, it seems kind of disjointed. Um, there are points where I'm like, I wonder if Argento was in the editing room going, I paid for Keith Emerson, I'm using all of his music. Because there's certain scenes that just seem to be around the music, but there's nothing going on. Like the one cab ride scene, I'm like, why are we getting all this music here? It, it doesn't work. Uh, it seems a little slow. The the one thing for me that I was really interested in seeing, because I hadn't seen him in a lot of stuff, is, uh, as I was telling Mike the other day, is uh, Lee McCluskey is in this. And I'm a huge fan, um, just guilty pleasure film, uh, Hamburger the Motion Picture, and to see him in something else. <laughs> I was just like, I totally forgot he was in this because I saw this, like I said, I think this was one of the Anchor Bay um, releases because Anchor Bay got their hands on a bunch of it and put it out at one time. And this was one that just kind of floated past because there were other ones that I loved, like Deep Red, and I loved um, Tenebrae and, and Phenomenon, but this one was kind of a, it, it didn't hit me as hard as it should have. As for Mother of Tears, it is um yeah wow um there's a lot of questions in here and um it um there's it, it you can definitely tell that the younger generation was having an effect on him as opposed to him having an effect on a younger generation and what i mean by that is the deaths are a lot more gruesome and he was really kind of playing into that, knowing that that's where the audience in horror, I guess, had gone instead of staying true to his own. It's hilarious at times because there's this one character. It's like all the witches are convening on on Rome. And there's one who I guess she might be Japanese or something. And she's just kind of harassing the Asia Argento character. And I just can't help but laugh because I can't figure out if they want to it's one of those that if it was two guys, you'd be like, this is homoerotic. It's like, should they 
fight or fuck already. That is all kind of sad to me because what I see in it is that Argento, I think, became aware that he had set a standard for a certain kind of violence in films and I think really wasn't interested in topping it at a certain point. You know, I know that Dario is, it, it was always into the, oh, I did this now, I want to do this because this is going to be more exciting, more thrilling, more gory. But I think that at a certain point, the genre went so far be- ahead of him that he didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. And I, I really feel that in his later films, quite honestly. I feel as though his heart wasn't in a lot of things. And to me, that's kind of sad. It's sad to me, too, because his classic period of work is just so good. And the the sad thing to me is that when I look at, and even though Inferno is in that period, but Mother of Tears is further out, there there's not these levels like we talked about with Suspiria where there's the symbolism or this can mean this, or there's things to go back and look at again. Um, it, it seems to miss that. And it's also my understanding. And I think you may have written about it in the book that during Inferno, he was ill. So maybe that plays a role in it that he didn't have his hand on it as well. He just lost heart at a certain point and didn't want to do the things that were becoming the standard in this kind of film. I I, I think when he was making films in the 70s, he was completely part of that, I want to do more, more, more. I want to to make people see more violence, more transgressive, I think is probably the, 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 the term that he would have used, and not just Argento, but a lot of other European filmmakers at that time. They wanted to transgress. They wanted to do things that other people hadn't done that would be really shocking to people coming to the movies. And at a certain point, the transgressiveness, I think, caught up to them and went to a place that they actually weren't interested in going to. And I think for Argento, it was disheartening, to be honest, because he saw people being transgressive in a way that wasn't interesting, that was just incredibly violent and incredibly bloody and incredibly gory. And that to him, I think, didn't mean anything. You know, when you come right down to it, although Argento was always a filmmaker who wanted to do more, 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 he was also a filmmaker who was firmly grounded in the idea that cinema should mean something and that if you wanted to transgress, it was because you wanted to make your viewers see something or experience something or feel something that they hadn't seen or felt or experienced before. And I think he he was kind of thrown back on his heels by a generation after him of filmmakers who just plain wanted to throw stuff in people's faces. And I'm not sure that he's ever recovered from that. What you say makes sense because of his background coming through criticism. And then, you know, the first film that he writes that gets any real notice in America was with Bertolucci and um, in Leone and Once Upon a Time in the West. So, I mean, this isn't he's not a 
he's not a dumb man. I mean, this isn't just some guy putting out slasher films. I mean, he has intellect. Yeah, completely. He has intellect. He has a, a historical and theoretical background to the kind of films he wanted to make. And I think maybe the genre got away from him. It went someplace he wasn't entirely comfortable going. And, and I think that at a certain point, he just didn't want to pretend that he was willing to go there. I, I can't say that from within Argento's skin because I'm not I'm not Dario Argento, but it's it's my gut feeling. The only thing that I can think of as someone who took a you know that had a long stretch of time in the creation of a trilogy of films within horror, and this would be um, Coffin Joe from Brazil. Mujica Marins, where the first two films were made in the 60s. He makes the last one 40 years later. And it's still like embodiment of evil to me still holds up as something that has connective tissue. Um, even though it does fall into the category of a lot of the things that were going on with the Eli Roth school of, you know, heavy gore and all of that other stuff and shock in the early aughts he still was able to bring across ideas that he was talking about in this case, 40 years earlier uh, within the work. And that's the thing that I kind of feel is missing in mother of tears is that he's, he's trying to connect the threads and he's bringing up things from the first films, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem to hold together as well. Well, with Argento, I think he, I think Tenebrae is the farthest that he was able to go. And I think Tenebrae is a, pretty unbelievably, uh, you know, mama knock you out kind of film. It's astonishing. I, I think he did an amazing thing in Tenebrae, but I think that, that that was it. I think that was the limit for him in how far he was going to go. And I don't think that it was a bad place to stop because Tenebrae to me is an astonishing movie. Really, you know, Peter Neal is an amazing character, and the place where Peter Neal winds up at the end of that film is pretty mind-boggling. For years, I thought Tenebrae was the third film, because don't they talk about Matra Suspiria, Matra whatever, and then Matra Tenebrae? Yeah, because it, it, so when I heard, oh yeah, Tenebrae, I was like, oh, well, that's the third one and that it comes third in succession, I was like, oh, okay, yeah. And then there's, you know, and it even starts with a book and discussion of a book, and having come right after Inferno, I was like, oh, well, Tenebrae is the the book that talks about the three mothers. No. And so as I'm watching the movie, I'm just like, this has nothing to do with those others. I mean, it's, it's a great movie. It's got a kick-ass score. But, yeah, I was like, oh. Okay, I must be. I had my wires crossed on that. I'll fully admit. So I was like, okay, yeah, I guess I do have to watch Mother of Tears. And then even just watching Mother of Tears again, technically seeing that with Aja Argento speaking English, and it didn't feel like it was all post dubbed like the majority of of the early Argento films. I was like kind of taken out of it by that. Some people will complain about the dubbing from Italian films, but we've talked about on the show before that. It just adds to that surreality of the whole situation. You know, to hear Jessica Harper's voice coming out of Jessica Harper's mouth is great. But then when you have other voices coming out of these other actors' mouths, it's like, okay, yeah, that really adds something to it by making it feel like 
things don't necessarily belong. And that is a great effect that is then lost in something like Mother of Tears. Oh, absolutely. And yet, Tenebrae means darkness, and, and it is the Mother of Darkness film. So it it is, in its own way, I think, the conclusion of that trilogy, even though there is no allusion in it to Mater Tenebrarum, and yet Peter Neal, most assuredly, is an acolyte of Mater Tenebrarum. I mean, there are no two ways about it. He, he, you know, he worships the darkness, the blood, the violence. So I think that that is actually the end of the Three Mothers trilogy, even though perhaps technically speaking it's not. Emotionally speaking, it absolutely is. And that's the thing that, and we can have a completely different show about Tenebrae, but the thing um, of him giving you an expectation and not um, and tweaking you is that you think, right, you look up that word if you don't know Latin, darkness, and it's the most brightly lit film ever, and all the murders take place in the daylight, from what I remember, or in really bright light, so... Yeah, so he's messing with your head. You know, it's not the darkness of, of when things happen, it's the darkness of the soul. i got to say, I can watch Tenebrae over and over and over again, and it never fails to reward watching because it is so unbelievably dark at the same time that it is so incredibly bright. It's, uh, it's, it's a knockout film for me. And again, that's another one that um, uh, kudos to Don May and the team over at Synapse. They did a really nice cleanup on Tenebrae, too. So if you haven't picked that one up on Blu-ray, you really should. Yeah, the Synapse release of, of Suspiria looks gorgeous. I watched the extras, and I was slightly disappointed with some of the extras that are on there. And the it's weird to me just how few female voices there are as part of the extras as part of the commentary because it feels like as we've talked about suspiria is very much a female film and that i feel very honored and i'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass maitland but you know you are the woman who wrote the book on argento so having your voice on here having alexandra's voice as part of the interview is just like I'm like, well, how tough was it to get you guys together and to talk about Suspiria? I don't really think I have to twist your arm very hard to do that. So it's like, I would have liked you guys to have been on that disc maybe as well. So I don't know. I was slightly disappointed by that, that it felt like it was a little giving uh, very prominent female critics a little short shrift on that. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Biting a hand here by saying that, but what are you going to do? It, it's how I feel. So I want to know a little bit more about this new Suspiria, which I still don't know why it's coming out November 2nd here in the States rather than before Halloween. This feels like the perfect Halloween type of movie. I haven't really looked too much at who's in it, what's going on. The only thing I know is that Tilda Swinton is in it, and she is always amazing, no matter what she's in. And I hear that she's playing two characters. She is, yes. And it beats the bejesus out of me why it's not opening around Halloween, except that perhaps uh, somebody thought, oh, it's too classy for that. I don't know. That's all I can think. I saw this movie at a screening that was not a critic screening. 
it's not a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. It is beautifully made, but I'm not really sure what the point of it is. Okay. It's very handsome. It is very well acted. Okay, here's the thing that I, I actually like about it a lot. I thoroughly understand the way in which the dance world is a cult. And I don't mean that in a bad way per se, but it's it's a way of life. Once you commit yourself to dancing, you commit yourself to a way of life that is not the way most people live their lives. It's a, a commitment to a world that is extremely insular and extremely demanding physically and emotionally. And I think that the new Suspiria absolutely captures that. But I'm not really sure that I am convinced that that idea of the insularity of the dance world and the cultishness of it carries through to the film overall. Tilda Swinton is fantastic in it. She is so incredibly good. I, I don't even know what to say. She's fantastic. But I didn't come out of that film thinking, you know, holy cow, my world was just turned upside down. You didn't get punched in the face again. No, I did not get punched in the face again. And again, the, the screening I saw was not a critic screening, so I'm reluctant to really take an intensely critical stance towards it. Although at the end of that screening, I, I did fill out a pretty extensive questionnaire that certainly addressed my feelings about the film from a critical perspective. I'm just not really sure what the point of that Sperio was. So it was very nice that Jessica Harper had a lovely little cameo in it. Do you feel it suffers from the fact that, you know, they could have called it anything else. It could have been written, you know, whatever. But the fact that they use the basis of another film to make a film seems like it's, is it lacking in that way that there all these kind of remakes that have happened over the last 20 odd years, because it has a name that rings a bell in someone's head that may get them to go buy a ticket has done. You know, here's the funny thing. I don't think that this is a film that was made to appeal to horror movie, horror movie fans, frankly, which you would think that a remake of, of Suspiria would. It, is very specifically set in Berlin in the 80s. And as it happens, I actually, I, I didn't live in Berlin in the 80s, but I was there for a couple of months. And I do remember what Berlin was like then. And it, it was in a, a very odd between things kind of space. And I think that that is definitely part of this Suspiria. But more than that, it really is about the idea of dance as, as a cult. The dance world really is a world unto itself, and it's one that you either commit yourself to or you don't. And if you don't, you don't last very long in it. And if you do, you live in it until you can't live in it anymore. And the new Suspiria does, does catch that feeling about what the dance world is like. But I, I'm not really sure why it's Suspiria. It almost sounds like this would be a good triple feature with like atomic blonde which is specifically set in that mid 80s berlin the walls coming down and it is so specific to that time period as well as are we talking like 
fans of Black Swan would enjoy this new Suspiria? Absolutely. Black Swan is the, the movie that I kept thinking about as I, as I was watching it, because, you know, Black Swan it was actually an interesting thing for me because I, I wound up speaking after I saw that film to a lot of people who were not in the same dance world I was, but who were absolutely dance world people. And a couple of them, you know, came to this conversation saying, well, that movie's crazy. That, that, that's not what the dance world, I mean, you know, people, you know, girls sprouting feathers between their, their shoulder blades. And this, this is lunatic. And I remember saying, well, if you don't take that film as a literal embodiment of the dance world, but if you think about it as a psychological one, doesn't it start to make a lot of sense to you? And all of them said, well, holy shit. Yeah, it does. Because it's about the way in which to be a, to be a dancer means giving yourself over to a world that is extremely demanding, extremely insular, and extremely personal in all kinds of ways. And the only way that you can succeed in it is by giving yourself over to it. Because if you don't, you wind up being one of the many people who start out as dancers and realize that you, you're not cut out for this. You, you can't do it. It's like being a novitiate. You either have to give yourself over to religion or it's not going to work for you. And Black Swan caught that so powerfully that it, it was actually a little bit frightening. And that's kind of the way I feel about I'm a little scared by this film, just seeing that the screenwriter, his first big splash was uh, The Invasion, that remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers that we talked about years ago. Rob, you were on that episode when we talked all about all the Invasion of the Body Snatchers movies. And that was the least of the Body Snatchers. I think even Invasion of the Booty Snatchers I enjoyed a little bit more than that one. And then his next movie that's slated is a remake of Pet Cemetery. So it's just like, uh, I mean, I know that's a re-adaptation of the Stephen King source novel, but it's just like, okay, you know, it's that that makes me a little scared, but I mean, I don't like to judge movies before they come out, but if I were to judge his work solely on the invasion, I would not be really excited to see this, but it's one of those things like we were saying early, like I think you said, Rob, where maybe if they had called this something other than Suspiria, I might be more excited to see it because I do have this fear of remakes and I haven't seen the preview. I know some people are going gaga over the the trailers that have been out but I try to stay away from those. I've just seen the picture of Dakota Johnson wearing that silly string dress. And I'm just like, she looks ridiculous. And having seen her in 50 shades of gray, I'm really scared to see her in anything else. She's not good casting as a dancer because she doesn't have a dancer's body, but you know, that's one of those, that's the way movies are. But there is a sequence in which she is um, working her way through a dance that was choreographed at the end of the Second World War, and that's a that's very aggressive and and very body punishing. And as she's doing it, another dancer who's rehearsing in a studio nearby winds up being contorted in a really horrible way, 
by the way in which Dakota Johnson's character is moving her body. She's moving it in a way that's humanly possible. The other dancer winds up being broken into, into pieces by it. And it's actually, it, it, it's a good scene and it, it's quite powerful, but in the context of the movie as a whole, I, I, I can't say it really works for me because it doesn't really seem to me to connect to a through line that goes, that, that, that permeates that film. Overall, the film just does not work for me, even though I think there are some interesting ideas in it. Dance is unbelievably punishing. Dancers destroy their bodies. Even the, the, the best and the most careful of them destroy themselves in uh, 12, 15 years because dance demands things of the human body that it's, it's not really made to do. And this film, I think, addresses that in a couple of scenes. And that's interesting, but it, it doesn't really tie into a larger thematic thing in the film. So it doesn't really amount to much except that it, it's grotesque. It's one of those things where I'm, um, and, and I hate to say it, but sometimes I'll show up for movies just because one person's in it. And uh, Tilda Swinton, I mean, could read the back of the cereal box and I'd probably be enthralled. And she's fucking fantastic in it. She is astonishing. She is so good. She has a physical presence that is breathtaking. Uh, she has an iciness that, I have seen in a lot of ballet masters and mistresses in my day. She is extraordinarily good. And every scene she's in is phenomenal. But then there's a whole other film around her that I think doesn't really quite live up to that. There's been such a dearth of movies lately, and I don't really see that changing any time before December. So November 2nd, I might still end up going to see that. Just out of curiosity. Oh, if I were you, I would totally go and see it. I mean, it, it is an interesting movie. The other thing, and I'm, I, I will plead ignorance, even though they did come about during my high school years, is um, I believe the score is by Tom York of Radiohead. So I'm, I'm a bit kind of like, uh, I, I really love Claudio Simonetti. <laughs> It just I'm when I when I think of Suspiria, I can't help but think of Goblin. It just you know. So maybe I gotta beat that out of my ears. Well, again, the new Suspiria is a, a completely different atmosphere. It, it doesn't have that kind of soundtrack. It doesn't have that kind of visual palette. It, it, it's actually quite gray and grim, which is very appropriate to the time and place in which it's set. And I I. I you know, I, I did see Berlin a few years after that, and it's very appropriate to what Berlin was like then. But it, look, it, it's it's not a fairy tale, and that's what Suspiria is. Suspiria is a candy-colored fairy tale, and this is a different Suspiria. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. brain it's gone that's not all the entire spinal cord is missing that's incredible 
It's as if some mental vampire at work. Does it come from another country or another world? This terrifying menace that G2 must destroy before it's too late. Image is fading, sir. There it goes again. Same trouble. How can they stop this invisible force whose only warning is a weird, blood-chilling sound? <laughs> only two people still alive can help this agent find the answers. The girl who could be a spy and the scientist who could be the destroyer of the entire human race. We're facing a new form of life that nobody understands. I believe it feeds on the radiation from your atomic plants and that it's evil. You've got to stop them. There's only one way, shut down your atomic plant. If I can get through, I can blow up the control room. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Fiend Without a Face, where I'll be joined once again by Maitland McDonough. How'd you get so lucky, Maitland? And what have you been up to lately? Oh, I've been yeah, doing this, that, and the other thing, still republishing the vintage uh, gay erotic novels that I've been doing for a while, and various other things. And, oh my God, I love Scene Without a Face so much. That's a movie I, I first saw when I was a kid on Channel 9 in New York, and I just loved those brains with their little antenna and their icky little feet. I, I adored them. And actually, I would be a bad person if I did not do a shout out to Riverdale Avenue Books, which is republishing the gay erotic novels that I've been collecting and republishing on my own for years. Riverdale Avenue Press has been absolutely doing an amazing job republishing these books, uh, including the last two books I did, which were Naked Launch Part 1 and Naked Launch Part 2, a pair of terrific pirate novels that are so much fun. I cannot recommend them enough. So, Rob, how punk rock have you been these days? <laughs> um, I'm immersed in it. By the time this comes out, we will be a few weeks away from the launch of my project, uh, Detroit Punk Rock Archive Project. Thanks to the fine folks over at the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation who are meeting me with some match money. You know, the great thing about doing any project like a book or or what I'm doing right now is that you talk to one person and then they give you numbers for three more people and then your interviews just continue to expand. So it really is an embarrassment of riches. And I'm finding great stories. I'm finding amazing things. People have been sharing with me great photos, video, uh, all of this stuff from the scene here uh, in Detroit that uh, obviously was influenced with everything that happened in uh, your hometown there, Maitland, with, um, you know, the founding of CBGBs in the late 70s and all of that stuff. Just sort of talking about how that opened up um, creative freedom and artistic freedom for a lot of folks here in Detroit, everything from magazine publishing to people who are now respected painters and artists to um, musicians and even just the ability with local clubs where 
uh, back in the day, you had to be a cover band uh, here in Detroit and play four sets of whatever the top 40 music was in the in the 70s. And uh, to go from that to being able to basically do whatever you wanted on stage and being able to draw an audience. So it's uh, it's been great. And people are pulling old tapes that, you know, demos and various things out that no one's heard in 40 years, including um, people such as Don Was, who I think just won a Grammy for helping the Rolling Stones do a, <laughs> a record recently. So it's it's an amazing scene. It's an amazing time. Uh, I was in the first few days of my infancy when it started, um, but uh, it's great to be able to meet all these folks and talk to them about what's happening. So uh, there'll be a link to that. I'll share all that, obviously, with folks. And um, in next year, as part of the project, there'll be some compilations coming out of of some of this music that I'm collecting, um, released, unreleased, and live tracks uh, from uh, late 70s Detroit punk rock scene. And Rob, where can people go to keep up with your stuff? Uh, they can go to robstmary.com. They can follow me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And also I have um, Detroit Punk Archive on Facebook. And that's basically where uh, a lot of the announcements are taking place. And I plan to launch the site on, and I'm going to say this phrase, and most of the people who are not from here listening will say, what the hell is that? But I'm planning to launch the archive site on Devil's Night. You know what that is, Mike. Well, if people have watched The Crow, they know what that is. <laughs> okay, maybe they do. It's the night before Halloween. Well, I will be sure to link to that and over to Riverdale Press, where you can find all kinds of great smut. Thanks again, guys, so much for being on the show, and thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make donation to the show, Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.